Hello, and thank you for calling Movie Phone, brought to you by the Killer Bee, B96. <laughs> hey, says to Miss Cockman here. Baby, up your butt with a coconut. I think he was prepared to do it. Dylan. You son of a bitch. I'm going to tear up the fucking dance floor, dude. Check it out. Terrific. A six-demon bag. Sensational. What's in it, Egg? Hey, yo, Kareem, baby, what's up? Well, listen, you ought to ditch the geeks in the car with now and get in with us, but that's all right. We'll worry about that later. Hey, homie, you need some help? I don't know where you're headed, but can you call in sick? Welcome to episode two of Two Seat Cinema. My name is Lou. No, I'm Dan. That's Dan. We're uh, we're gonna do this thing for real this time. So if you uh, joined us last time, you you got to know a little bit about us. You know, kind of how we met and kind of what makes us tick to a very shallow degree. But you know, you also know that this podcast is about movies, and we're gonna talk about a, a movie today in great detail. Um, that movie is called Can't Hardly Wait. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be quite a time now before we get further into this, I want to let you know, we're going to spoil this fucking movie. As I said, last episode, you know, the point is to really just dig in on this thing. So we're, we're not going to, we're not going to bar any holds. Everything's coming (laughs) out. If, if, if something happened, we might talk about it. So it's definitely fish hooks. Yeah, exactly. If you haven't seen this movie and you plan on it and you don't want it spoiled, go watch the fucking movie and then come back and listen to this. But if you've never seen it and you don't really plan on seeing it, that's okay. We're going to give you so much, you're going to feel like you've seen it at the end of this. And maybe you'll be like, I don't need to see it. You know, I've I've heard enough. At the same time, though, I don't know if I'm jumping too far ahead here. There was actually talk of a sequel. So maybe you'll have to go back and watch it just to make sense out of that. Yeah, maybe. Well, we can talk about that in the the fun facts section later in the episode because... I don't remember if I brought that, if I have that in my notes, but remind me when we get there, because I do remember reading something about that. Will do. So, uh, as I said, we're going to do Can't Hardly Wait. I know it's a weird choice for a first movie on a movie podcast. It's not, you know, the height of cinema. It's not anything anybody would consider like a fucking, I don't know, integral, uh, what, what would you say? What would, you, what would be the word? It's not a masterpiece. It's not an exemplary example of the format. No, it's definitely like just a fun movie. Um, and I know some people consider it a classic to of the genre, like teen films, which, you know, is less a genre now than it once was. So, you know, back in the 90s when everything was a, a teen, a teen movie, it was a genre that was a lot more healthy. Right. I'm actually going to posture that this this movie falls into a subcategory of that. And um, that subcategory would be... Um, films that aspire to be breakfast club that aren't in, in, in that it tries to uh, give another snapshot of the social conflicts that take place at the high school level, this time set in the late nineties, as opposed to the late eighties, mid eighties of breakfast club, Ferris Bueller, that sort of thing. John Hughes golden era. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that 
and as if you when you put it that way, this movie fails a little more dramatically than I probably would initially have given it credit for, just because of how fantastic The Breakfast Club is. It's definitely doing the you know personality types, you know, clicks that whole trope thing. Yeah, it definitely looks at different stereotypes and tries to pin them down. Um, sometimes over exaggerates them. Sometimes forgets you know. To actually do their homework on it, I I will circle back to that. <laughs> yeah, I look forward to it. Um, so yeah, th- this movie was released in the United States on June twelfth, nineteen ninety eight. You know, the budget was around ten million dollars. The gross box office on this bitch was twenty five point six. And uh, I mean, I, I, that sounds to me like a pretty good return on investment, but. You know, movies are fucking weird. So I think I think if you put it in perspective, the movie itself I think was was kind of just like a, a dream project for for two people that had uh, been kind of buddy buddy. They decided yeah. to put together this film, and and you can tell it's it it reaches, but um, doesn't necessarily get above the level that it that was set at. Yeah, one of the articles I read s- said that it was only in theaters for three weeks, which doesn't sound realistic to me, so maybe it was like an exaggeration or an embellishment for just to be dramatic, but I mean, it seems like... I, I think that the f- like the opening day was pretty good. They had a pretty good like Friday, and then they had a shit Saturday and Sunday, so... I think it would be relevant to see what it was up against, but maybe we didn't do our homework there. <laughs> I mean... The nice thing about editing is we could look right now if we really wanted to. All right, movies in the theater. Six Days, Seven Nights, Out of Sight, the first X-Files film, A, a Perfect Murder, Children of the Corn 5. Truman Show was the week before this, which was pretty fucking huge. Um, a Perfect Murder was the week before, so Michael Douglas. Yeah, nothing great came out. Um, you know what's interesting, actually, looking at these now? Like, the movies that came out around the same time. Like, Dirty Work came out the mm-hmm. same day. I remember that movie being in our theater in Town & Country. Okay. So, I, you know, it was when I was working, when I was working there. It had to be. Yeah. I remember. We we had Six Days, Seven Nights, though, too. Yeah. I wonder why we didn't have Can't Hardly Wait, because I feel like I would have seen it there if we had it. What's... And the X-Files came out the week after. So, nothing crazy huge to, like, right. you know, fucking take it, take that... it down. The other thing, I mean, to put in perspective, um, we talked about being two two cinemas in Arlington Heights, and Hunter Country would usually get the teen movie fare, if if anything. So it would be surprising that we wouldn't have had it there. Yeah, I don't know why. I mean, I would have seen it there if we had, and I really don't. Well, let's get into that here in a second. Um, the next segment that we're going to do is, is our first exposure. What we remember about seeing this movie initially and as we're saying, you know, I we worked at a movie theater together back then, and that movie theater was pretty standard that they would get teen movies when they came out. But for some reason, I don't remember this movie coming to our theater because I think we would have seen it there. And my first exposure to this movie, I, initially, I thought I had in my mind when I thought I saw it. And then I went and did a little research, and the theater that I remember seeing it in was one Schomburg place. Okay. And there's no fucking way because one Schomburg place had, had closed down the theater there by that time. Like sometime in 97, it had closed down and then streets of Woodfield didn't open until December of 99. So there was no theater over there 
between that point when this movie was out. You don't think it's possible. I mean, Streets of Woodfield shut down and, and there was literally the theater was the last, last thing to pull out. Yeah, no, there's a there's this website called Cinema Treasures that's all about like theaters that have gone out of business. It's like very nostalgia driven. And it that th- that site, which has seemed very accurate to me before, said that the theater was the last thing in that mall that was still open for like a while and then that theater finally shut down in 97 so i must be remember seeing a different i mean i saw a million movies there so obviously but for some reason the memory i'm associating with this movie was not actually for this movie the more i think about this movie because obviously at that point i was like well when the fuck did i see this movie i have a distinct memory of thinking that peter fascinelli reminded me of the guy that my ex-girlfriend broke up with me for and I had never seen Peter Fascinelli before this film. So doing the math, my ex dropped me like a hot potato at the beginning of 1999. So I must have first seen this movie while working at Tower in West Hollywood. Like I must have seen it as a rental, probably around spring of 99, which is, you know, good solid six to eight months after this came out in theaters. So I don't know why I missed this in theaters, but I really think I must have. So to pull on my memory strings, I definitely did not see this in the theater. I saw this based upon you telling me I should check it out. Really? Absolutely. Oh, that's fun. And I remember distinctly one of the main reasons you said I should check it out was that on DVD you thought it was a pretty casual, funny uh, commentary track that they had on it. and oh. I, And you sent me to watch that and... So it was one of the very first DVD commentary tracks that I had watched. Um, I, I'm trying to think of another one before that. So that might have been one of the very first ones I watched. That's funny. Dude, I my first commentary tracks all happened when we were living together in Palatine. I remember watching like the commentary for Goodwill Hunting and shit like that. Actually in your bedroom because you had the DVD player in your room. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, after this point, I wonder if maybe it was around that time then maybe you saw can't hardly wait after I got back from California. That actually sounds right. Yeah. Good times. All right. Well, interesting. That That's something I didn't know about. I think it's, uh, it's worth talking briefly about, you know, the actors in this movie. Most of these actors, obviously when you watch it now, you're like, Oh, look, there's everybody. Right. But at the time I, I remember knowing most of these actors already anyway. I mean, Peter Fascinelli is sort of an exception. I didn't know who he was when I first saw this. But, like, you know, everybody else, Seth Green, Brecken Meyer, Ethan Embry, fucking Jennifer Love Hewitt. Like, everybody was pretty familiar to me. See, I, I, I want to build off of that point where I went back and I watched it. And it definitely, it reminded me that in my mind it seemed that there was about 25 working actors uh, between the ages of 17 and, and, and 30 in Hollywood at the time and 20 of those 25 seemed to circulate through the movies like this it, yeah. def- it you go back and you watch it and even you, you, you can pick out people just left and right I mean Jason Siegel makes makes a, a 30 second appearance in there um, you've <laughs> I think got this is his first movie uh, yeah it's it's possible you've got just a crisscross of people popping up Selma Blair pops up for a minute on a swing set and there's there's <laughs> some scrubs uh tv show scrubs crossover there's uh Buffy the Vampire Slayer crossover in there you've got 
couple actresses that um, pop up in, in one-off episodes. You've even got um, one of the uh, ensemble cast members from Buffy uh, as, as a, an extra without a word that just graces the screen for about a split second. Who are we talking about? Talking about Amber Benson. Uh, when we get to there, you could you could tell me when when we hit that point in the movie, unless it's just that <laughs> it's generic. Literally, like, the the, just, the camera the camera crosses over, and she's just sitting there, and the camera crosses past her. You know, a lot of plot was cut out of this movie, so it's possible she had a bigger part, and they just cut everything out. And it, you know, there's a few people who appear to be extras now, but mm-hmm. are actually had speaking roles in the original movie. We'll talk about that later, yeah. though. I also think it's worth noting, we're going to talk more about Jennifer Love Hewitt, obviously, but uh, we had a big-ass standee in our living room of, I know what she did last summer, and so it was just like an enormous (laughs) her from, you know, just pretty much nipple up, you know what I mean? Like, just huge, like six foot, seven foot tall in our living room for months. Yeah, you couldn't call it life size, you could definitely call it giant size. Yeah, it was quite a bit larger than actual size in that case. So uh, now we're going to do, uh, we're going to take a look in the poster case. We're going to do a little poster check. Now, this will probably be more fun in future episodes because this is a movie neither of us saw in the theater. And I don't really remember the posters from this movie. Looking at the posters, there's two that I found that were like pretty familiar. Um, and it's just because they mimic the box art, either DVD or VHS. But I really remember that red one. And I remember thinking like, those actors don't interact like that in the movie. And I found it it's like one of the strange things they do sometimes on posters where they have all the main cast all together in a, in a pose. And you're like, these fucking people don't really interact this in this way in this movie. It like paints a picture that's not very accurate to the movie. Yeah. Same thing with, for me, I remember the, the red borderline across both of those. Um, beyond that though, there's, there's really not much to this that I remember. And, you're right. Like there isn't there isn't a scene of, you know, Peter Fascinelli, you know, wrapped into Jennifer Love Hewitt and it's just yeah, none of that. Yeah. It, it's definitely a photo shoot. <laughs> Seth Green like looking like a, it's it's so like not even I don't know, it's weird. It's a great but, example of early photoshopping. Yeah, yeah, they just took all these fucking separate pictures and put them all together. But good times. Um fuck it, let's get into this goddamn movie. Let's let's talk about this son of a bitch. So we open on an instrumental version of Eve Six's Open Road song, placing us firmly in the 90s. And through a kind of voiceover montage slash expositional dump, we find out that one, there's a huge party in the works. And two, Mike Dexter totally broke up with Amanda Beckett. The fucking voiceover in this in this intro is so cheesy. It's so, like, feels dated to me. Well, yeah, it's also forced in the fact that it's, it's not a single cast member. It's actually the co-director's voices talking over that. <laughs> they're they're the voices yeah that's believable you could you could feel that from it um the montage ends with us looking at preston myers played by ethan embry wearing a cap and gown and sitting at the huntington hills high school graduation ceremony we get a freeze frame info card which gives us enough info to assume that preston is into writing he's decent at school he was a swimmer to some degree i guess and he plans to go to dartmouth and then the Thoreau quote, uh, beware of all enterprises that require new clothes, which I guess tells us that Preston is big into authenticity and also pretentious as fuck. Where is this Where is this film set? I mean, they don't ever specifically say, but... He's taking it's... a train to Boston at some point, so... Well, when we get to the end of the movie, that's Union Station in L.A., 
So the train station's in L.A., and they filmed it, obviously, in L.A. We'll talk about some of the locations they filmed at later. But, I mean, I think that the directors both came from, like, outside of Philadelphia. So I think the the school is based on their high school experiences in Philadelphia or outside of Philadelphia, some small fucking suburbs. But because it's all fim- filmed in L.A. and it, the geography looks real L.A.-ish to me, I couldn't not think of it as California. It's Southern California all the way. I mean, obviously, if they just want to tell us, you know, like fucking American Pie or something, they're going to just tell us it's Michigan or whatever, even though they clearly filmed it in like Torrance, California. (laughs) It's like, all right, well, I guess it's fucking I guess it's a suburb of Philadelphia, but this fucking reads Southern California to me all the way. Yeah. And that's it it seemed to not disguise that in any way, shape or form. It just the only thing that was weird is the schools that everyone is proposing to go to did, didn't necessarily make sense that they're all going to go basically out east from, you know, California. So Right. I feel like the schools are all designed to imply personality stuff. Like Dartmouth, you know, it's like, okay. Yeah, it was forced. Motherfucker. Definitely foreshadowing the uh, the stereotypes that they're about to force down your throat. Yeah, yeah. What do you think of those title cards? Those, like... Uh, the info dump cards you know i i don't mind them on this kind of vehicle it's it's not offensive if you know this was meant to be a more serious film it would it's it's kind of strange i could see it in even like a you know like a superhero type film or something along those lines yeah i could see that working too as a device but as far as this film goes it's fine it it doesn't it's it's helps with exposition that considering that the 80 percent of the film takes place on one setting right right and i mean as we go through this fucking movie you'll see this was a real challenging one for me to do a play-by-play on because it's basically like each scene is like one line and if you add all the scenes together it it equals a plot but like it's it's very hard to just focus on a scene and then talk about it for a while because it's all like real short clips and it's actually a little like a family guy episode you know and that's it's kind of weird. Yeah, and it's funny you mention that. It's it seems that there's so they have a multitude of devices that they use to push the narrative forward. I mean, you've got anything from those info cards that you spoke of to uh, as as scene progresses, you've got the following camera that basically narrates the action as it goes through. You've got um, they use like interesting wipes and cuts too, where yeah, like, the transitions you know, it, are weird. You've got you've got some voiceover monologues, um, you know that tell the story you've got some flashbacks you've got a character that reminisces about past events to give you some more exposition on the characters backgrounds um and then aside from the info cards there's other screen text that that pops up towards the end as well the cards are what make it like a cartoon for me we were talking about the breakfast club earlier the breakfast club would not have these fucking cards it basically takes you and says okay don't take this too seriously that's kind of what those cards say to me. It actually reminded me a little bit more of um, the outro to Animal House, where at the end of the film, they're telling you what happens to the characters. And funny enough, that that's echoed here later. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, I also think it's sort, it's sort of designed to resemble like a yearbook, like a blurb in a yearbook, I think is, is also what they're going for. Well, that's totally what they're going for. It's especially by listing all the school activities and then having the quote and so on. It it. It's taking the yearbook, you know, idea and and explaining their characters ahead of time, so you don't really have to think much on them later. Yeah. 
So freshly graduated, Preston is stoked that Amanda Beckett is going to be single, and it's clear that he had a thing for her. He's telling all of this to Denise Fleming, played by Lauren Ambrose. We get a freeze frame info card for her as well, which tells us uh, enough to know that she's a classic cynic. She's going to tell it like it is. She's a straight shooter, you know, no bullshit. The kind of the kind of chick that I would have got along with real well in high school, you know, like cute, but not the kind of cute that most people would notice, you know, and that's that's what I was into back then. So I feel like I would have hung out with this chick in high school. She's she definitely seems like the accessible friend that everyone sort of has, at least in that group of friends. Not necessarily the big cynic per se, but that person that uh, definitely is willing to call you on your bullshit. Yeah, for sure. We learn that Preston is leaving tomorrow, which I always think is a fucking weird. Like, okay, you graduated today and you like bought a fucking train ticket for the next day. Like, yeah, it's it's really forced to move move things forward. Yeah, you you they graduate. Nothing happens in between the actual graduation ceremony to arriving at a party. Yeah, I mean it's yeah it's very designed for plot in this at this point. I, I that kind of stuff sort of bugs me, but I'll forgive it here. Um, but the, he and Denise had some kind of plans, and now he's planning instead to go to the party where he can hopefully right some past wrong that kept him and Amanda from further exploring a perceived by him connection. Uh, this is the first signs we get that he's a fucking lunatic, but we'll talk more about that in a minute. Uh, so we get a flashback of Preston arriving at school during his freshman year, and there's a voiceover during this whole flashback. But at the same time, we see Amanda Beckett arrive. He aggressively implies that it was fate because he was late to school that day and he's never late to school. So he was the first person at their school to actually see Amanda, which I'm going to be honest, I felt a little bit like he was calling dibs at that point. Uh, not only that, but she has a class with him where he, where the teacher sits her next to him. And as hard as all this is to believe, mere moments later, we see that they're both eating the same flavor Pop-Tart. But before Preston can volunteer to give Amanda a tour of the school, Mike Dester swoops in to claim his prize. Yeah. Again, this this all reeks to me of like, we're supposed to find this kind of charming, I think. It's designed it's, in a way that makes me feel that, but it's not to me. <laughs> yeah, it's written like there's this serendipitous moment that, that takes place with a Pop-Tart. And, we're, you know, you're, you're meant to believe that he's never late to school. Yet this is freshman year. It's not like you've developed this long track record of, of your behavior patterns in high school at this point anyway. So, again, a little little bit of a reach. Um, yeah. yeah, he sounds crazy. Uh, <laughs> he he's, sounds like a nut. I imagine he's, he's at some point picked up that Pop-Tart that fell to the ground during that scene and kept it, <laughs> kept it sealed up you know, and, and sitting on his bookshelf in his room that he, he's built a shrine around at this point. I like to imagine he's like smelling it while he jerks off, like you know, sensory kind and, of. <laughs> so, again, Preston is played by Ethan Embry. Just just side note, Ethan Embry's not a bad-looking dude, but it's it's – it almost seems like his his forehead gives you this I'm much too old for high school because I seem to have a receding hairline and it's accentuated <laughs> by the fact that he keeps making these these em- emphatic doe eye type faces with you know, his eyebrows drag his forehead to the point where it's it stretches top to bottom on him. Yeah. No, he's definitely got crazy eyes too. I mean, I, as an actor, I like Ethan Embry. Uh, I have a a real soft spot for him, uh, probably partially from the movie, that thing you do, which I really like. And we will hopefully talk about one day, 
I as an actor, I do enjoy him, and I enjoy him as an actor now. Like he's kind of grown up, and and he does more mature stuff. But he always has the crazy eyes. He's always had these fucking crazy eyes. Yeah, and I mentioned on our on our previous episode that I had a degree of separation um, when it came to Ethan Embry, and that goes back to another crazy part that he played in a movie called Cheap Thrills with my friend uh, Pat. Definitely playing the antithesis of of the the shy kind of awkward teen at this point so he's he's moved on from that yeah well i mean if you follow him on twitter or if you read articles with him he's kind of a volatile dude so i don't know if he like really just try to take a hard right after these fucking teen roles or if you know, we'll talk a little bit more about him later, but yeah, he's sounds like an, an interesting guy. It's just my point was as as I rewatched this film, you know, years after seeing it the first time, it's really hard for me to not see his aging, you know, taking place yeah. right in front of my eyes. It's very, it was really kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, he's a he's quite a character. So in that flashback scene we're talking about, we never see Amanda's face. And there are a lot of weird details like light lightning and ghosts closing doors. I don't know if they're ghosts, but like a door closing itself in a real dramatic fashion behind when Amanda and, and Mike leave the room. So it's very like it's dreamlike a little bit. Well, it's a flashback. And, so, yeah. But I mean, it, to me, it makes it feel like we're not supposed to take it as fact. Like it's it's sort of like him telling a story. But because he's telling the story to Denise it, it kind of paints him like he's trying to act like this is what really happened. Yeah, it does give that kind of fantasy retelling version of it where, like, it's, I don't know, it's not necessarily Rashomon where it's like, you know, the, the three versions of the story all blending together and which one's true right. and which one's not. But at the same right. time, it's it definitely leads you to wonder, like, is how much of this is really just built up in this kid's head over the last four years and already already to me a red flag trouble sign <laughs> that this guy's yeah. a nut job yeah. i saw the same thing and i was like okay either this guy is uh creative or he's potentially a serial killer you know like he struck me as delusional at best and and like mentally insane or unstable at worst but yeah he's uh He's off. He's a little off. And when I saw this the first time, I don't remember thinking that. I just remember thinking like, oh, he, he really likes this girl. And I, <laughs> thinking to myself, you know, I had some moments in my life where I was a little obsessed with a girl. And, and I'm sure if you had asked me, I would have said some shit that now made me sound like a fucking crazy person. So it's probably kind of realistic in that way. But it's, yeah, I, 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 I won't. I won't fault it for 1998, but I think as time progresses, you know, you, you look at it and there's just not a way that this doesn't come across creepy in 2021. And it's just, but again, take, take the subject matter aside. You you can tell again that this is an early film for, for these directors and this, this crew, because they're, they're trying to pull out a lot of tricks and, and different ways. And the fact that, it, it it clearly seems like they were probably having fun plotting and and you know mapping out how they were going to do this, where they more or less could have used uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt's stand-in for that scene, where they I feel like they probably you did. Know, dude. And that <laughs> that being said, you know I I feel like half the movie Jennifer Love Hewitt could have had a stand-in play her, but hey, that's that's later. <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about that later. Uh, you know I like. The fact that we don't see Amanda's face in this scene, I kind of like it because it does kind of make it seem like, is she, was she even there? Was this in his fucking head? You know, that's where it starts to feel to me like he might have imagined all this. This might be a fantasy he's concocted. And 
I mean, he re- he really might be uh, he might need some some support here. I guess is what I what I'm saying. And uh, Denise is not the right support for him. She is and she isn't. I mean, because she is gonna she does call him out for this stuff, and she just says, "Why the fuck didn't you just do something about it? Why are you waiting this long?" And that was what he needed to hear, but he needed to hear it a lot more emphatically and a lot sooner. Right. Well, I'm trying to imagine like four years of this, you know, like we just see it this one day. But if you imagine him being like this for four years, like, bitch, why don't you just go talk to her? I, I feel like I've been that way for four months at a time. And I feel really sorry for the people in my life that I've put through that. So I'm sorry, <laughs> everyone out there, yourself included, Lou. That's awesome. Uh, my pleasure. My pleasure. <laughs> so Preston talks Denise into going to the party with him and the stage is set now. I'm going to hit you with a couple of tidbits right here. The first one, the graduation scene was filmed at Temple City High School, which is about 20 miles east of where I live right now. And back in my days as an Uber driver, I actually had a passenger. I picked him up from a dealership. He was like a, you know, kind of middle-aged guy, like maybe in his mid-40s or so. Not a bad-looking dude. Uh, And his ride was to go from this dealership to this high school, Temple City, which I had never been there. I'd never seen it before. So we drove and he's a real nice guy. He was like an assistant principal or something like that. We talked about the kids and his job and, you know, normal Uber shit. Driving Uber is kind of like being a bartender a little bit. But when I got there, I dropped him off and I was like, something familiar about the way that this the, the football field is and the, the bleach. I, something about it looked familiar to me. So when I went home, and I looked it up. I was like, oh, fuck, that's where they did the graduation scene. So like there's a lot of little background stuff there that I was like, oh, I fucking remember. I remember it like brought me back in a weird way it was and that happens living in la a lot but you know it it happened here with this fucking movie the second one is in the flashback scene was actually filmed at john marshall high school which has been in a ton of other movies and is near enough to where i live that i've i pass it a couple times a week before the covid lockdown it's very familiar to me so like later when he's laying on the hood of his car all depressed that's that's also the same john marshall high school and I pass all the time. So, yeah, little funsies for you from California. Well, uh, you've, you've just kind of helped everyone dox you, so just heads up. Yeah, come and find me. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> it's not that hard, actually. You probably could. <laughs> I hope we have enough fans at one point that someone will, you know, like that That's that means we, we made it, dude. Well, yeah, that or we really piss somebody off. <laughs> I guess, yeah, like too much profanity. Uh, so... Back to the plot. Next, we meet Mike Dexter, played by the previously mentioned Peter Fascinelli, who reminds me of my my uh, ex-girlfriend's boyfriend after me. I, I do remember you had kind of a man <laughs> crush on him, though. That being said, He's, P- Peter listen, Fascinelli, that is. Not, not I'm going to be honest. Both of, them, both of them are good-looking dudes. But, I mean, Peter Fascinelli's a good-looking guy. He, he's... There's some of his facial feature things he does, like when he makes a face, he like pulls his face in a way that's kind of weird and like makes him look sort of feral. But I mean, he's <laughs> he's a good looking dude, and he's got a, he's got a, like a nice bod, you know, in that fucking tight ribbed red shirt with right. you know, shows off the the little bit of lats, and he's done a little arm work. See, but that's that's another reason why I questioned earlier as to what town or what area of the country that this is set in because it seems like out of nowhere he's got an east coast accent when no one else does <laughs> you're looking for a, a level of acting my friend that you're just not going to get in this movie <laughs> well we're dissecting here you're, you're maybe taking, you're he taking these to, levels maybe he moved to california from wherever from the east like in eighth grade i don't know man you know? he did a lot of work in eighth grade to be able to be the stud freshman year then to score amanda beckett I mean, you're right. 
there's no there's no answers this this goes in the in the black hole but i think you're just, just excusing <laughs> this here listen be that as it may him and his band of merry men they're sitting around eating an early dinner at an out, outdoor burger joint which uh another little fun fact that burger joint is one of those restaurants that's in a billion movies and it was called I don't remember what it's called, but it was in Downey. It's like, it, it's like, <laughs> it's one of those places that I think at some point became just for filming. Like it wasn't an actual restaurant anymore. It's called McDonald's. I think it's been turned down. I think it was called Johnny's in this movie, but I can't remember what the actual Firestone Diner or something like that. It's been in a lot of stuff. Yeah, it's it's a Burger King. <laughs> Definitely a Hardee's. <laughs> but we're gonna we're gonna get Mike's freeze frame info card here, in which we gleam that he is a versatile top who is always down for a bit of mustache play. <laughs> just just kidding. Uh, <laughs> he's obviously he's a jock, like the captain of the football team type, and really nothing else going on. It's all just further evidence that he's like a jocko kind of dum dum. Um, yeah, yeah. This well, they use another device here where they where they carry over a line of. Uh, dialogue that takes from one to the next where they kind of echo that line of dialogue um, you know where they talk about uh, I think in this this scene it jumps from Preston and uh, Denise talking about Amanda Beckett and then him mentioning Amanda Beckett and then as you see the next scene it'll jump um, from Mike Dexter is a god to Mike Dexter is an asshole yeah, they definitely do a lot of like call and response dialogue stuff to go from scene to scene here. And I mean, I'd be honest with you, for first time filmmakers, it's pretty it's pretty good. They do a pretty good job. No, I'm um, not faulting them for that. I'm saying that it draws attention to the fact that they were probably trying to pull every bag, you know, every trick out of the bag when it came to this though. It's like we we got we got ten million dollars to make a film, we've got to cast, let's do it. Let's pull yeah. that trick out we had waiting. Yeah. I mean, I think that for the most part, they're successful with it. Um, and I mean, other than the fact that we're noticing it and I don't remember if I noticed it as much when we first watched it, but I definitely noticed it this time. But, uh, fucking Mike Dexter's telling his friends, basically, basically he's telling them he broke up with Amanda because they're going to be in college soon. And he wants to stop dating girls and start dating women, which of course is laughable because he's such a fucking kid. The way he acts is so ridiculous that he's not, I mean, I'm sure that's part of what's going on here. It's it's supposed to be kind of making fun of him, but uh, clearly, it's, you know, it's his juvenile behavior is is basically preceding, you know, not preceding, but foreshadowing where we're going in the film. Yeah. Um, but you also talk about how you know he looks like a child with his behavior. Him and his buddies, though, definitely look to be uh, a little bit more adult age than some of the others. <laughs> There's yeah. definitely one of his cronies looks like he's about 28. So. Sure, sure, for sure. <laughs> sure. Yeah, they didn't do a great, great job in, in some of the casting there as far as, like, they're supposed to be high school kids. But, you know, that that's always going to be kind of a problem. I mean, think about fucking Greece. Oh. You know? Like, yeah, I mean, again. Those are, like, <laughs> they're I, in, like, the, their mid-30s and shit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's a lot of suspending of disbelief when it comes to yeah. some of the casting. But it's, you know, it is what it is. It is indeed. So... His uh his jock friends all decide to break up with their girlfriends too as like a kind of jumping on board his fucking train. You know, he's sort of the, the leader of this little group and they're all trying to kinda uh jockey for his favor. So in this moment they're all gonna decide to, to break up with their girlfriends in solidarity. And why is that Lou? Because Mike Dexter is a god. 
Mike Dexter is an asshole. I it's funny because actually my notes I put we cut from Mike Dexter is a god to Mike Dexter is an asshole, <laughs> and uh, that's when we meet William Lichter, played by Charlie Corsmo, who uh, was a pretty popular child actor back in the day. I think he was in Hook and Hook, a bunch sure. of other shit. But uh, his freeze frame info card implies that he's an overachiever nerd type, you know, with like about a million extracurricular interests and. His quote is an Einstein quote, which, you know, none of these quotes are particularly interesting. They're all pretty basic, but, you know, you don't even need to know the quote. Just know he quoted Einstein. You're like, okay, I understand who, who this guy's supposed to be here. Yeah, I mean, Lauren Ambrose, uh, Denise's quote was something about a true friend stabs you in the front by, I think it was Oscar Wilde. And it just, it again, highlights the fact that she's a cynical teenager. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, a true friend does stab you in the front. So Wild was right. Exactly. Um, <laughs> I mean, with with Charlie here, um, it is you know interesting. He's like you said, he's playing the the consummate brainy overachiever nerd, and it kind of seems like that's what he is in real life. Yeah, yeah. We'll get into that in the fun facts for sure. But he, uh, yeah, he quit acting and went and had a real life. Apparently. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah, he. This was his. <laughs> this was his last film. Um, from my understanding and then he definitely had a had a life where he became highly educated um and i just i i want to point that out though based on the fact that he's he's playing this this kind of geeky nerd type um and in real life he goes on to get a degree in physics from mit and then a a law degree i believe at yale um that being said i feel that uh he he should have been more than capable of pointing out that some of the stereotypes that they used for the for the nerd <laughs> culture in this film um, needed a little bit of either downplay or correcting. Yeah, yeah, we'll get to that for sure. Um, so William's been bullied by Mike throughout high school, and he's giving a monologue to his two sci-fi geek friends about how all the wrongs done to him by Mike. Yeah, I mean these the friends are as one note as possibly could be and to a point where it's laughable there's a moment later where it's just so stupid that it's like not it's almost not even it's almost wrong they even did it it's like the kind of thing that maybe would be funny brainstorming but then you don't actually put it in the movie but we'll we'll talk about that in in a at that point it's just when it came <laughs> it came to stereotypes i'm not sure which one in this film offended me more going backwards in the fact that these the, the the nerd stereotypes are just so it, it they seem like they were put together by somebody who didn't do their research at all and and just <laughs> picked out here's X Files here's Star Wars here's two characters from Star Wars we're gonna we're just gonna throw this in a blender and see what comes out and and all the props in this scene look like they came from Spencer's gifts like they just said here here's two hundred bucks go buy some stuff at Spencer's <laughs> gifts we're gonna get you some. Some like models and some Star Wars figures and a couple of dildos and some lube and a birthday card, <laughs> <laughs> you know. And 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 that's that's basically it. I mean, these these two guys are are almost set pieces themselves. Yeah. Well, we'll get more of them in a bit. But uh, one thing I did really like in this scene, one thing that made me laugh out loud, was when he's talking about how Mike Dexter beamed him with a raisin, and he had to wear an eye patch, and then his parents took him to a 3D film festival, and he says, I saw no third dimension. <laughs> I laughed out loud when he said he saw no third dimension. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, 
So using some models and action figures like we're talking about, Wilm and his reluctant friends walk us through their plan to humiliate Mike Dexter at the party. Basically, they want to render him unconscious using chloroform mixed in chemistry class, which, of course, is laughable, and then strip them naked and take Polaroids of them in some kind of implied homosexual embrace. Now, you laugh about the chloroform. <laughs> he got his degree from MIT in physics. He, I mean, yeah, he did. At this point, he now he probably would be like, that's not a thing. I don't feel like that's <laughs> a thing. I, chloroform is obviously a thing, but I don't think it works the way movies tell us it works. Um, <laughs> At but, least like Three Stooges or you know, things yeah. like that. Well, more than that, though, like this whole the I guess it makes sense that the worst thing you could do to Mike Dexter is make people think he's gay. But just the like we're going to return to this theme a lot in this movie, unfortunately. And I'm listen, I'm no kind of crazy lefty like you're not allowed to make jokes. None of that. I'm I'm very down the middle and I laugh at both sides equally and I'll laugh at everything. It's funny, but it just they 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 take from this well so much in this movie that you almost have to wonder like what's going on there it it, it looked, I don't know. to me to me it almost like they they borrowed a page from a previous teen film um much darker uh being heathers where yeah you know i the, thought the same thing you know you you take the the scene where the two bully jocks are um i mean I'm sorry if I spell Heather's who uh, are are killed <laughs> and um, posed in a homosexual act uh, using you know props and things that again this this has a parallel to can't hardly wait that yeah. we'll discuss in a sec. Yeah, no, I mean it's definitely I, I again it's you know it's probably true that the worst thing you could do to a, a like jock in the '90s was make people think he's gay, but. It doesn't make it any less kind of uncomfortable to <laughs> to think about like, oh, things were ugly back then, weren't they? <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, you think about how shitty things are right now, but eh, they, they were like they're they're more shitty outwardly now. Back then, they were shitty in a real su- subtle kind of menacing way. Yeah, it does, it, this this seems more bullying further than than it should be um, for for a teen comedy. Um, yeah. At least in uh, Heather's, the there was a little bit of acceptance when the the father you know bursts out loudly. Lo- he he loves, loves my, my dead gay, gay son. son. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody seems to love anyone's dead gay son and can't hardly wait. Nah, no, there's no redemption for gayness in can't hardly wait. But you know, spoiler alert. Uh, so from that somewhat problematic scene, we're gonna cut to Kenny Fisher, played by Seth Motherfucking Green. Kenny is uh, I I don't know how to say this without saying something that potentially could get me canceled but he's I a have, caucasian kid yeah. who fully embraced urban culture i i struggled <laughs> with this too if if it was you know how to label this um because again you talk about cancel culture we there was uh-huh. definitely a word that circulated um oh, very yeah. very then, freely when it in when the it 90s you would use the n word but it was the w word yeah, and and it, it was a sign of a uh, Caucasian uh, cultural appropriation um, act, and uh, yeah, I don't don't know. Uh, I, Kenny I don't is know what's committing that act. <laughs> I don't know what's <laughs> honestly. I'm I don't know what's safe to say. Yeah, let's just say that his freeze frame info card quotes Tupac, 
and it says he played one game of JV basketball, which is <laughs> funny because, first of all, Seth Green's like four feet tall. But also, the fact that he only played one, it kind of leans into it. You know, that's that made me laugh. Out so loud that that was game. yeah, that was my moment uh, for your. I did not see and you know a third dimension. I saw no third yeah. dimension. Then the the one game of JV basketball. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it, not it, worth putting on there <laughs> it, it it definitely gave me a tickle in my ribs good good i'm glad me too uh so kenny and his two cronies are, per- are perusing a convenience store while having a discussion about college girls and fucking kenny tells his homies that he has uh, narrowed it down to 10 lucky ladies he's gonna hit on at the party he also shows them his love kit which is just a backpack full of rubbers and scented candles and lube <laughs> There's definitely more uh, homosexual slurs that take place. Yes. Well, the love kit made me laugh, except for I feel like it would have been funnier if it was a little little bit kinkier. Like a scented candle. It's funny. It's supposed to be, I think, kind of innocent. Innocent. It's supposed to kind of betray that he's not very experienced. His naivete. If like a double-headed dildo fell out of that backpack, (laughs) it probably would have betrayed him a little bit. So I, I appreciate that they didn't go like hard, but... It still would have been funny if there was like a little more uh, kink in there than there was. But yeah, after Kenny shows his friends the love kit, one of them pulls out a pink candle and calls him a fag. And this marks the first time that that word makes an appearance in this movie. Uh, And it certainly will not be the last time. And I don't plan on saying the F word because a couple of reasons, but mainly because I don't I feel like it's it's one of those words where like the n-word there's no way to use that word and have it not mean what it means but you know the word fag is a word it's it's means things and we're not going to get super deep into that but let's just say that i don't feel uncomfortable saying the word as long as i'm not using it in a derogatory fashion but i don't expect you to say it if you don't want to dan yeah i mean i personally took it out of my repertoire several years back just in general because i i realized that anytime i used it it was it had the opportunity to be taken the wrong way and I, yeah. how how else do you take it i mean it's it's supposed to be a derogatory slang so it's it's taken probably in the right way and i'm not meaning it to sound that way so growing up as as a kid in you know the 70s and 80s it was um pretty much synonymous with calling somebody an asshole it we didn't have any homosexual connotation attached to it but that's no excuse now so i took it out of the repertoire that's a smart move i'm not as smart as you i mean obviously i don't say it as a as a it's not part of my repertoire exactly but (laughs) i'm not uncomfortable just saying it in conversation about the word like in this whereas the n-word i'm not going to say to you on a podcast uh, no. no, no matter what the connotation, it's not a good idea to say that word. No. Um, and you know, maybe the, maybe fag will eventually hit that level for me. Um, again, I don't, I, it's first of all, for all our, I was going to say for all the listeners out there who don't know, because it, it's obviously, there's no reason for this to ever come up on the podcast, but I am bisexual and openly so, and have been openly so since I was 19. So I'm not saying it's like I can use the word because I'm that or anything. It's more just like my perspective on uh, derogatory slang aimed at people of a different sexual orientation is probably a little different than yours or most of our, you know, potentially straight audience. Again, you know, 
I'm okay with you not saying the word. And again, and again, I think it's weird to see it used this way in a movie where we're not supposed to think those characters are fucking horrible. You know, yeah. like that's the thing that's interesting to me about it is you you hear people say it, and we're watching this movie. We're not supposed to think, oh, this guy is a bad human being. <laughs> Maybe we're thinking, oh, these kids are ma- misinformed or they're a little immature or whatever. But when you hear someone use that word now, it's like, oh, this person might be a bad person. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I guess I guess you could draw a parallel to any sort of I don't know use of the n word back in the fifties and sixties where people grew up and thought that was okay, but yeah. I don't know I, I I can't excuse any of it. So yeah, it it doesn't ruin the movie for me, but it definitely it it feels like I'm being you know smacked every time it's being said. Just like ooh, that's I, I don't need that right now, but. It is what it is, uh, and it won't be the last time we hear that word said in that way in a movie we talk about. So strap in, motherfuckers. Um, (laughs) Years from now when motherfuckers is canceled. On a lighter note, this is also the scene where we are introduced to the Shermanator as a featured extra slash kleptomaniac. (laughs) Yeah, man, I was going to call it the Shermanator myself, and it just that goes back to that whole ancestral casting that's taking place in this film. I mean, again, anything from Save the Last Dance to American Pie has Can li- I ask, feasts off of this. Do you know that actor's name? <sighs> nah, I couldn't tell you without looking it up. <laughs> I believe his name is Chris Owens. I, I think that's his name. And if I know even, if I'm even close, that's it's, impressive. You're, you're, you're one letter off on the fact that oh, it's, not, it Owen? It's, it's not a plural Owen. Yeah, it's just, it's just one Owen. Yeah. Chris Owen. Okay, so the, Chris Owen, later known as the Shermanator from the American Pie movies, and then forever known as the Shermanator. I wonder if he realized when he said that in that movie that that was it. Game over. You're the fucking <laughs> Shermanator for the rest of your life. Talk about typecasting. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. The, you know, think of the guy from uh, The Sandlot, the redheaded kid. He's always going to be that kid to me. Yeah, for sure. Thought of him too when I saw the Shermanator pop up here. Something that does, that has to be mentioned by, in in my opinion, is that when we talk about Seth Green's character in this, he's definitely indulging himself in his his voice chops here. He's 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 given himself some sort of accent that he carries through the rest of the film that I really can't say that he's he's trying to be hip hop with because it just doesn't. It, it's it's not, <laughs> but he's he's definitely given himself this this utterly quotable sense to him after after the way he yeah. manages his it's, lines. It's funny because it's a cadence thing, and like when he says "baby, please," like that <laughs> kind of stuff, I think of that as a thing. But yeah. it's from this movie. So, Ten lucky ladies. Like, yeah, it's like he. It's almost like fucking Yogi. He's doing Yogi Bear, dude. <laughs> he's doing he's doing a gang, gangsta Yogi. Yeah, it's fucking Yogi Bear hey, boo from boo. the hood. That's what it Don't sounds like. Don't fucking step. <laughs> Why you gotta steal my flavor, boo boo? But yeah, it's fucking it's it's totally urban Yogi. That's so funny. <laughs> anyway, why does the uh, ranger steal my flavor? Exactly. Um, so with Kenny's uh, introduction, we arrive to the party the party house where things are already swinging. Denise and Preston have just arrived and are outside in Preston's car when Preston unveils the letter. Oh, the fucking letter. Uh, Clearly, he's been writing draft after draft of this letter over the years, and Denise lights him up about it. This, again, is is to your point. She does kind of let him have it, but not not too little too late. Uh, When he's distracted at this point by Barry Manilow's Mandy playing on the radio, 
He takes as a further sign that he's supposed to duct tape Amanda's mouth shut and tie her up in his trunk. Not really, but that's what I think he's thinking. I think <laughs> he might be planning an abduction. Um, yeah, sketchy as fuck, this guy. <laughs> Yeah, it's man. and I don't know if that's like a, a failure as an actor or a failure of writing or what that is. But I couldn't stop thinking about like this guy's a, a, a lunatic. This guy's got emotional an emotional imbalance here. He's he's definitely obsessive. And, yeah. you know, it's it's rough watching now. I read a book. Um, I. I I know you've read a few of them by John Douglas, uh, Mindhunter being one of them, actually the first. Yes, 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 yes. I think the third book that he put together was called Obsession, and it talks about uh, stalkers and, and you know this, this whole mindset and how dark it really is. And uh, after reading that book and then rewatching this film, it's hard to, to separate those two feelings of like, this is a detestable person that's, that's fixated upon this, this poor girl. <laughs> and, and, and it's a meant to be a teen comedy and, and it's, right. you know, it's likely going to do harm. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> like the end game here is not one of, of love and, and yeah, cherishment. And like him and it's... Ed Kemper are going to swap stories later. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> Fucking cellmates. Um, so they enter the house and we get the first batch of uh, no-name, semi-one-dimensional character tropes that kind of define this movie, as we've talked about. Uh, we start with the girl whose party it is, walking the line between doting hostess and angry dictator, and she'll get crazier and and and, and more uh, irritated with everybody as the party goes on. And I actually enjoyed her quite a bit. You know, um, I, I actually thought she was quite attractive, actually. She's not not a bad looking lady. I, and I don't know why it was, but she's she's dressed up like a southern hostess in this film. Right. <laughs> right. And she I apparently she did some more acting and then she moved over into like the costuming. So she's done a lot okay. of like costuming work in, in Hollywood since her acting days. But yeah, I think she's pretty effective in this movie. We'll we'll meet up with her again later. Uh, then we get Yearbook Girl, played by Melissa Joan Hart, which she was huge in the 90s for her portrayal as Sabrina Teenage Witch in the original run of that show. Right. Um, this is this is the first of the, uh, the uncredited cameos, too. Well, uncredited. I wouldn't call it a cameo, I guess, but uncredited actors that pop up. Yeah, yeah. She's she's definitely listed as uncredited. I, I think this might have been her first movie. She was famous for TV, but I don't know if she had done any movies at this point. This was before, like drive me crazy and the other teen movies she did um it was but it seemed almost like like there's there's a couple times where it seems like these there's a couple actors that pop up that are doing a favor to the directors that's what it that this feels like to me yeah likely true but her character is knight's goal is uh to get all 522 seniors to sign her yearbook she's a lot of seniors a pretty big high school i mean i don't know i don't remember how many there were in my school but it feels like there weren't 522 people in my class yeah you probably had about a 400 yeah i guess you would know you you were your girlfriend at the time was a junior when i was a senior so and yeah. you didn't you attend her graduation and they called my name <laughs> i looked around <laughs> I looked over my shoulder you weren't there buddy so the, the quick story on that is that i i dropped out of high school my senior year and then i went to night school a year later to get my diploma so i technically graduated with the class after my original class which dan's girlfriend at the time was part of that class and dan went to her graduation at this point i was already living in california i had moved 
out. I got my diploma in the fucking mail, you know, months later. But I guess because I was technically part of that class when they did their walk and everybody was getting their diplomas, they they fucking called my name and Dan for a second, like looked around, like not sure if I was going to appear and pick up my diploma. Cause he, I was definitely not in, in the Chicagoland area at that point. But yeah, I looked under the bleachers and see if you were down there. But... <laughs> I was down there looking up the skirts. <laughs> <laughs> gonna jump on that early porn oh boy but uh yeah so uh <laughs> so yeah she uh she wants to get those signatures anyway next kenny and his homeboys arrive driving a big ass suburban bumping some tunes and you know obviously the seth green dri- little ass driving that big suburban is funny even without all like the the hip-hop stuff on top of it <laughs> but yeah fucking i wouldn't even be comfortable driving a suburban i don't think to that probably handled like a, a truck and that thing was there's no way you could have parked that you know and no. the, the way the way that they laid that party scene out yeah so kenny and his friends are rude to yearbook girl before kenny announces his intentions to get busy and from there we meet the house band now the house band thing it's like so indulgent to me like there's these actors we've you know some of which we're very familiar with and we'll find out later uh brecken meyer playing the lead singer was actually dating one of the co-writer co-directors and so he's obviously there doing a doing a solid i think he's another uncredited actor in this movie correct and then we've got uh what donald Faison is that his name from yep. scrubs as the drummer yeah. um and then two people i've never seen after this movie as the bass player and the guitar player i don't know if you were familiar with their work after no. this but i am not um and yeah the, the, they're all set up on a makeshift stage in the corner of the living room and and breckenmeyer tells the rest of the band that it's their first show ever and they better not screw it up and he's dressed like a cross between like maybe robert smith from the cure and prince maybe they definitely refer to him as the white prince or dre- white prince. dressed yeah, like kinda, the white prince he's also kind of got like like second wave emo hair a little bit yeah because like it's definitely the bangs brushed down into his face yeah but he, he, made he, he looks like he's choice. wearing yeah he looks like he's wearing the pirate shirt from seinfeld yeah he's got the fucking ruffles in the front and he's probably got eyeliner on too but uh the drummer then tells the others about his cousin who knows someone who knows someone who knows someone who knows a scout or something like that i assume scout was like a generic like a and r is something we would think of now but I guess maybe they would call them scouts back then, like fucking sporting scouts. I don't know. That sound, that stood out to me, like a scout. Yeah. <laughs> was a fucking scout? A record scout. Yeah. But, uh, then we see the T-shirts that they made for the band, which say Love Burger on them. <laughs> and it made me laugh, the idea they would have made shirts for their first fucking show. See, uh, here's the thing. I As far as this film went, that's one of the, to me, more enjoyable little side side plots that they have going on i enjoyed i enjoyed the band i enjoyed the jokes that they had at the at the expense um you mentioned the love burger shirts i'm sure you were about to go into the direction of why they started to argue amongst each other and that was you don't wear (laughs) the shirt of the band you're in and that that was always something that uh i felt was kind of like the unwritten code somewhere in in bands you don't wear your own band shirt at a show no, well, I mean, it's their first show, so maybe they don't know that yet. They haven't learned that. But I, the thing about the band stuff to me is you could cut all of that out, and I don't think it changes the main plot at all, right? No, nothing nothing changes about that other than um, a, a, a scene or later with, with music. Yeah, 
I, I feel like the main the main plot of this is Preston and Amanda, and I feel like if you could cut something out completely and it doesn't change anything about that plot, then it's a little indulgent. But, you know, I, I mean, that's the thing. That's why a movie like Pulp Fiction is so fucking good, because there's these weird things that don't seem to connect, but if you cut any of them out, it doesn't really work. The whole thing doesn't work, you know? I, I think the Love Burger part adds some color to it, and it gives another stereotype to work in there. This party... Are you talking about, Don, are you talking about Donald Faison when you say that, Dan? Am I talking about Love Burger being Donald Faison? No, when you say it adds a little color... <laughs> That, I'm, no, not at all. I feel very uncomfortable not right at now. All. Um, <laughs> no, Sorry. no. Sean, pa- Sean Patrick Thomas fills that bill. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> that being, you know, I, I, again Holy though, <laughs> Love Burger. I I enjoyed the I enjoyed that little tiny subplot. I did. Um, the only thing is, it, it, again, it lends further evidence that this party never would have happened the way it did. But again, this is a movie about a, a high school party at, at its core. So they they threw as many different aspects as they could because it wouldn't it, this this party just wouldn't have come together this way. Yeah, yeah. So we cut to the nerdy trio running through the backyard with a ladder, which made me laugh very like Looney Tunes. And as the sci-fi friends climb onto the roof of the pool house, one of them worries that William will have to drink alcohol to fit in, and is worried he might get drunk or even addicted which is another moment I laughed when he said you might get addicted. William has a plan for that, though. He's downloaded some kind of chart off the internet, which will tell him how many spirits he can consume before it affects his judgment, which is awesome. Um, Especially the whole, like, downloaded from the internet. It's very, like, you know, he's probably on his fucking dial-up. Well, if we believe what we saw in his his bedroom, he has a, you know, I think a second-generation Mac that he's using. Nice, nice. So, uh... Also, he weighs like 85 pounds, so it would take him about half a sip of beer to get fucked up. But he doesn't know that, so we'll, we'll, we'll check in on him in, in a little bit. And, and you know, Dan, from this light, you somewhat resemble David Duchovny. <laughs> See, again, again, yeah. again, I, I feel that of all the, the stereotypes that they force down your throat in this film, um, I, I feel that the, the, the nerds were the most thrown together with the least amount of research just took whatever <laughs> whatever if you just, they just basically went and asked somebody what's science fiction and uh exactly X- x-files was referenced several times in this film what do nerds like exactly and it just yeah. seemed like if these guys were true nerds they they wouldn't have been blending things as much as they were you know what was really missing here a fucking tardis <laughs> that's what it really would have really taken it up a notch you know? yeah i think that i think though that would have that probably would have lended some some credibility to the nerds but at the same yeah. time would have been lost completely on the audience sure so you don't think like maybe some black dwarf in the background would really not, tie the whole thing together I'm not sure what black dwarf you're referencing it might be red dwarf you're thinking of <laughs> you're stuck on the donald faison thing i know exactly <laughs> Sorry, man. Oh, he, that's genius. He definitely that's, seems like a fun guy. So that's brilliant. I, I, I hope. I great. hope. I hope he loves us. He seems like a wonderful dude, and I'm happy to talk nice about him here. So, uh, <laughs> and, and and you know what? I I also thoroughly enjoy the fact that he wants to wear a cowboy hat while playing drums for Love Burger. Yeah, I dig it. I dig it. The cowboy hat was good for me too. <laughs> So uh, as William makes his way towards the party, we meet meet another of the nameless characters, the foreign exchange student. Uh, A stoner couple is having him say inappropriate sentences, the first of which is, I am a sex machine. 
and he seems thrilled to jump through hoops for them. It's at this point that we get the classic line, would you like to touch my penis? Uh, but before he can get out that last word, we cut to Mike Dexter, which again, I think is another one of these little clever wipes they do because Mike Dexter's a dick. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I can't imagine that's not what they were going for I there. It seemed very intentional. The first thing we see Mike Dexter do here is physically assault yearbook girl. And it's played for laughs. He, he shoves a couple of different people off screen like this, but this first one where he shoves uh, Melissa Joan Hart off screen, I feel like if I saw someone do that to Melissa Joan Hart in front of me, they'd catch these hands. You know what I mean? Like I agree 100%, but at the same time, I also did laugh. Yeah. I, I, I think it's I think it's just the, the immediate moment of it where he's just casually walking and just gives a hard shove. And yeah. it's unforgivable, you know, from – you know, a, a realistic standpoint and from comedic effect, it was kind of funny. Yeah. I'm not, I'm, I, it's not a hill I'm going to die on for sure. <laughs> no. And do uh, I endorse that? No. No, not that behavior unless it's for laughs. <laughs>, <laughs> you know what? I'm sure I've pushed you a few times for laughs. Uh, you definitely have. Um, so lots of high fives are given as he walks through the party. And this is 100% the guy I hated in high school. So make of that what you will. The jocks spy their cheerleader-looking girlfriends, and Mike Dexter stands aside awkwardly as the other jocks hug up on their female counterparts. He not so subtly tells his buddies to remember the game plan, which, you know, it's one of those moments where if you're one of those girlfriends, you'd be like, what game plan is he talking about? But, of course, they're oblivious to anything being said. You say cheerleader-looking girlfriends. I say stripper-looking girlfriends. Okay, so... They are definitely stripper-looking. I mean, we got, what, Jamie Presley? Jamie Presley. I... I, I find her attractive, but I can't think anything other than stripper when I see her now. Yeah, well, she's dressed like a stripper at this party for sure, and she also looks like you know five years older than high school age, exactly. At, at least, so, well, she matches her counterpart boyfriend who looks like he's twenty eight. Yeah, that's true. Well, maybe they just failed a bunch. They're both like in their mid twenties, still going to this fucking high school. But I, I want to put her up as a Guinness Book of World Records. Uh, greatest bitch face yeah no for sure she was a. she replaced uh, drew barrymore in the um poison ivy movies right yeah she's a good pick Sounds for right. that she, yeah she's she's definitely appropriate for a, a femme fatale kind of role um i mean she yeah she's attractive she she's i don't know i just assume cheerleaders because they're fucking jocks and they all would be dating cheerleaders but you're right they definitely look like strippers or hookers yeah. uh, to some degree well i mean melissa joan hart's character in the film with the yearbook gar- girl seems more cheerleader-esque than than they do that's for sure they definitely seem more like clubbers yeah no you're right but i mean when i think of my my high school experience and the cheerleaders there they were definitely a, a bit sexier than melissa joan hart's character like melissa joan hart's character is peppy but she's also seems like square and virginal and the like popular cheerleader girls in my high school definitely presented like they fuck so (laughs) i don't know maybe maybe you know it was different in the 80s than it was in the 90s for me but they were the cheerleaders in my school were a hair closer to jamie presley than melissa joan hart for me i get it but since they're pushing stereotypes so hard i Definitely see them more as rich, snobby girls that uh, yeah. definitely go out and have their Prada bags. That makes sense. That makes sense. So uh, before they can, the boyfriends can go through with the mass breakup that they were planning, we hear those familiar first few notes of Six Underground by the Sneaker Pimps, which, you know, I don't know if you're a fan, but I love that song. Lots of, lots of good soundtrack usage for that one over the years. 
Uh, I yeah, I don't yeah. think anyone's made more money in soundtracks in the '90s than Smash Mouth. <laughs> we'll talk about them in a minute. <laughs> Back to Six Underground, there's really no better way to introduce Amanda Beckett, played by the angelic Jennifer Love Hewitt. Let's just pause here to admire the perfection that is JLH in this role. At that time, there was no one better. (laughs) So much so. I'm trying to get through this this, this sentence here, man. (laughs) Why are you going to steal my flavor? Oh, my God. I feel like she's doing a Pantene commercial the whole movie. It's awesome. It's awesome, dude. Like the fucking way her hair is like lightly moving. It's the breeze hitting it from the back. There is such an amount of body in the hair itself that there is about an inch separation from her scalp to where her hair then begins to crown over her. I'm going to tell you, she could make a good dog break his leash, Dan. (laughs) (laughs) I, I mean, you know what? I, again, I don't find her offensive by any means, but it's this role for 90% of what she played in is so plastic. It's I just, love it. Oh. I can't get enough of it. <laughs> I'm such a fan. Wait, way to tie in Smash Mouth with. Oh man, I really like her though. I really do. Like the the way she looks a little uncomfortable and a little shy when she comes into the room. Oh, like, it's so kinda... forced. Oh, it's awesome. <laughs> it's so forced. We're gonna have to ad- agree to disagree on this. I think <laughs> there's nothing natural about any of it. <laughs> Oh, forced. Oh, man. So I'm not no, kidding, man. It's definitely, she's doing a shampoo commercial the whole movie, man. Oh, it's like awesome. somebody definitely is sponsoring her for this. Sign me up. Oh. She's fantastic. Uh, her freeze frame info card paints her as a, the misunderstood popular girl who's deeper than she's being given credit for, which makes me oh, make Dan laugh more. God. Um, she, I mean, the, nothing comes out deeper. The but she's got a jewel quote, dude. <laughs> she liked jewel. Oh man. That just says this movie was filmed <laughs> in the nineties. It's awesome. Uh, anyway, she walks right in and passes Preston without even looking at him. And, uh, this is the first time it's a hundred percent clear that this dude has made no impression on her over the past four years. <laughs> it's like zero impact. It's believable that they've never had a single word he, spoken he, between them. He may as well have had a chocolate pop tart at that moment. I know it's like you would. You, it makes no sense. I can't believe that Mandy played on the radio and yet she doesn't even fucking glance at him. He's like right there. Have you even made the Mandy statement yet? Uh, I don't know. No, I don't think so. We'll get to it. <laughs> we'll get to it. It's a song about uh, his dog. I think we'll get to it. I can't remember if it's here. We'll get to it. If it's not, we won't. Um, so. Uh, so yeah, Amanda walks up to the jocks and the the stripper girls and says hello, <laughs> and uh, the girls are overly sympathetic. And Mike oh. blows her off, so she walks away in a huff. Um, and this is one of the many times as the viewer that I want to break Mike Dexter's jaw because uh, Amanda <laughs> never love Hewitt, man. She's she just the hair just flowing. It's not flowing. She's, it doesn't move. She's kind of kind of smiling and kind of grimacing. Oh, the amount of product that must have held that in place. It moves a little. Oh, like a spring. Just a little. <laughs> so uh, this is actually the moment right here where we get uh, we get our first taste of Smash Mouth, um, which is kind of torturous for me. I don't know about you. But uh, no, thank you. Hard pass. I don't miss. I, I 
I don't miss that they're not a thing anymore, and I I hope that the their inclusion in soundtracks continues to fade because no thank you. I can in fact get enough of you, baby. <laughs> so uh, Denise and Preston watch from across the room as Kenny does the robot in front of the mirror, and in the ensuing conversation, we find out that Denise and Kenny were friends when they were kids, and that she used to sleep over at his house. So that's the tie-in between those people. But there's a mysterious break at fourth grade. There is. At this point, we don't know why they're not friends anymore, although we can probably guess that because Kenny turned into a douchebag. But <laughs> hard, hard to say. I guess we'll find out here in a minute. Um, so, I, I hope douchebag doesn't get canceled. Oh, yeah. I, me too, man. I don't know who would be offended by it, but somewhere out there, someone would be. Um, so Preston and Denise look around for Amanda. Finding her in a room talking to the stripper girls, the stripper friends. By the way, I'm replacing every time I wrote cheerleader friends with stripper friends. So. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, no problem. And uh, Preston has a minor meltdown here, revealing that he and Denise had a short fling in eighth grade, which I don't know what that means exactly, since they're both, you know, she's had sex with one person, we find out later, and he's clearly never had any kind of female contact beyond <laughs> Denise. So, uh, or Or in his head. Yeah, well, he's a lot of masturbating for Preston. Um, But he lays down the gauntlet. He basically tells Denise that she's on her own. She's going to have to get a ride home later with someone else. That seemed a little weird to me. Like, it's just out of left field. He's like, you're going to have to get a ride home because I'm going to be fucking. Yeah, it's just (laughs) how presumptuous. Yeah. Even if not, he's going to be in jail is the other assumption on my part. (laughs) That's what the plan was. He's like, listen, you're going to have to bail me out later. So we're going to have to split up right now. I'm either going to nail her or kill her. God, my nailer either way um yeah so he's gonna put all his stocking attention towards amanda and denise is gonna get a ride home elsewhere preston then eavesdrops on amanda and her friends while they talk about mike and amanda's breakup it's clear that amanda's friends are shallow and amanda seems to get annoyed with them although if you hear dan explain it th- there's no seeming of anything from amanda just a wooden <laughs> face staring off into the distance <laughs> Oh, she's even you know relatively non-responsive to being compared to Gwyneth Paltrow. Oh, I know. I was gonna just say they they compl- they compare uh, her to Gwyneth and uh, Brad Pitt to or uh, Mike to Brad Pitt, right? And then quickly deny that he's Brad Pitt, of course. And also they say that Gwyneth is much prettier behind her back when she walks away, which I am going to disagree strongly with. <laughs> I uh, much prefer my JLH over Gwyneth Paltrow. Gwyneth is fine again. But- she's an attractive woman, but she's replaceable in this film. Have you never seen Ghost Whisperer, dude? I said, (laughs) as I stand by my statement, she's replaceable in this film. And the only reason that she's in there was because of Party of Five's popularity at the time. Yeah. And you know it. I know it, but that doesn't change my opinion one iota. And I'm sure she's Uh, a sweetheart. She may be wonderful. I don't know. I have not met her. I can't say for sure, but... I, I am, in fact, in I, love. You can be in love. I can just always picture. <laughs> Let me show you. What are you I've waiting for? <laughs> what are you waiting for? From I know what you did last exactly, summer. Exactly. Yeah, I've got a letter here that I wrote to uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt. And I'm just waiting to, <laughs> for the opportunity to give it to her. How <laughs> many times have you rewritten it? I mean, over the last twenty years, probably to the point where you don't remember what's in it. A number of times I've written, I've rewritten it. Uh, the scene ends with a chorus of Mike's De- Mike Dexter is an asshole, and Amanda extracts herself from the conversation. An asshole. Runs, he's an asshole. An asshole. An asshole. And then in the background, Preston literally runs into a wall trying to look casual. 
<laughs> the classic uh, Three Stooges there in the background. I mean, there there's definitely uh, there's some slapstick to this film too. Um, again, you've got the uh, the part where they're at the graduation. And they say, you know, you should never look back, and and a guy runs straight into a folding table. And except for you should never look back unless you're that guy. Unless you're that guy, yeah. Uh, uh, I like Lor- I like Lauren Ambrose. Yeah, no, I I think that she's she's diggable. Um, and uh, pairing her up with with the Kenny character was probably fun. Yeah, I met her once actually when I was working at Tower Records, and I'm not gonna lie, I felt like she flirted with me a little bit. <laughs> it was a it was a nice moment. I was like, oh, you too. I I draw a parallel um, to Lauren Ambrose in this film to um, kind of a Martha Plimpton type. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that. You know, I'm gonna be Goonies. honest with you. Yeah, I was gonna say in Goonies, I probably would have preferred Martha Plimpton over uh, Carrie Green, although Carrie's nice, but. Martha was more my type, kind of dorky, like, like, like she was like new wave chick, you know? Yeah. She was like the kind of chick that was into like psychedelic furs and that kind of stuff. I, I find that more appealing than like the classic cheerleader thing. I definitely had a moment in which I danced with her on a dance floor. Where? Uh, it was in Chicago. It was at the uh, Medusas. No, <laughs> it was um, it was at the uh, 25th anniversary of Steppenwolf Theater. Okay, nice. So. I didn't know she was connected to that. Is she? Yes. It's also oh. where I uh, got my photo with uh, Lieutenant Dan. Nice, <laughs> nice. Gary Sinise and yeah, some some Malkovich. Did he have legs? Did he have legs? Yes, he had yeah. legs. He was standing yeah. next to me at the time. I heard that he actually had them removed for Forrest Gump just just for that movie. He's that fun fact. Actor. Fun fact. Be honest with all my fun facts were fucking hardcore lies. <laughs> Who's gonna call me out? Uh, we've oh, hidden man. we've hidden a hardcore lie in here somewhere in, in fun facts. <laughs> <laughs> you get a prize package for picking it out. That's awesome. So uh, it's at this point that we get Kenny in a voiceover monologue, and it culminates in the quote from our podcast intro: "Yo, Kareem, baby, what's up?" Which is then followed by about three to four echoing steps in silence. Kareen was not interested, no. not at all interested. And uh, I got to be honest, when I watched this, first of all, I laughed out loud and I had to rewind it and watch it again, even though I knew it was coming. Something about the way he says it and his body language, everything about this is like Seth Green is a star of this fucking movie. He's committed. <laughs> He's committed in this it's film. Amazing. And I also was like, how many times did that that extra playing Kareen have to walk by him without <laughs> laughing? Because you, oh, she's stone faced. I know she doesn't even it's like almost feels like it's CGI like it's a composite <laughs> where she walked by without him there and then he did the thing with, without her there and then they just composited them together because I don't know how she doesn't even acknowledge him. I would laugh so hard at that. Five and a half million dollars of their budget went straight to that scene. It was, Dude, there's some fucking br- funny CGI in this movie. <laughs> I'm, bring I'm not even Cameron lying for it. I'm telling you, I'm not lying. There's some CGI in this movie. We'll talk about it in a bit. But uh, yeah, not I'm not here that I know of. I just Kareen is just a fantastic actress. She, she, she was also committed to not equally laughing. committed. Yeah, exactly. Her and her and Seth Green stars of the movie. Well, I, I'll throw this out here as it's it's apropos enough. If there's if somebody wants to ever sit in and uh, join us one day, Seth Green is my vote right now. Oh yeah, no, he's great. I have no uh, nothing bad to say about him. 
And uh, he's another one, actually, I met at Tower Records. Uh, but we'll talk about that another time or later or off the air. But yeah, he's a he seems like a very cool guy. I dig him, and I like that he's so small because it makes <laughs> me feel bigger. Um, it was also at this point that I noticed Kenny's fluorescent yellow translucent pager stuck on his jacket, and I immediately <laughs> thought of us in 1994. <laughs> you with your fucking your clear like whitish colored like yeah. like frosted pager, and then me with my black pager with a blue like case. Did you remember going out and buying like pager cases and swapping out and stuff? Yeah, no, I do. I remember it fondly. Bunch of fucking low-level drug dealers. I know you. You and your girlfriend swapped them out. Yep, I had a black pager. She had a blue pager, and we switched cases, so we had the black and blue reverse thing going. Yep. Same. That's the same girl that dumped me for Peter Fascinelli. <laughs> <laughs> or his doppelganger. His doppelganger. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> man, that's ridiculous. We've officially had this podcast run longer than the feature film now. Oh, man. It's not going to be the last time that happens. <laughs> We're only like halfway through this fucking movie. Not even. This is still act one. <laughs> oh, boy. I need to get the show on the road. So Kenny, ever the optimist, won't let Kareen's rejection deter him, but now he's down to nine lucky ladies uh, on his list of potential victims. <laughs> <laughs> But meanwhile, William makes his way into the kitchen where he has his first experience with beer and his reaction screaming that nobody should drink the beer, that the beer has gone bad, is exactly how I feel now tasting beer. <laughs> he definitely um, has a spit take all over the uh, guys sitting on top of the keg who look like they're in their 30s. So the guy to the right, or I guess camera to the left, the guy that's like got he's got like a mesh shirt on he looks kind of like he's dressed like a member of the of the pet shop boys <laughs> but he, he's he's the guy to the to the keg operators left he will make an appearance later in the uh, in the movie as the boyfriend of the girl that seth green was gonna have sex with but he never came back from the bathroom there you go the the jason that that they that she that broke up with her or cheated on her or whatever it's that guy and oh. i only noticed because i was like there's that fucking mesh shirt again <laughs> Well, the guy the guy sitting camera right to him definitely has a five o'clock five o'clock shadow that won't quit. <laughs> I mean, some of these people could be like older older dudes that came to like a, a Dude, high school party. Yeah, maybe, but this guy looks like he's a teamster working on the set. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe he's a teacher. That's funny, a fucking teamster. Um, yeah, he William recovers his dignity quickly, and the plan is all systems go. Next, Kenny hits on Ashley, but she derails his plan when she reminds him of the time that he had Cheeto dust stuck in his braces, and that her and her friends all laughed while calling him Chester Cheetah. <laughs> I like this actress that played Ashley. Her name is Paige Moss, and I don't think she did anything else I've ever seen, but I really like this scene. Her voice is a little derivative of Fran Drescher. <laughs> I, I like it here man another you and i are gonna have to agree to disagree oh. i really dug her here she her haircut annoys me too yeah her body language and her facial expressions and shit made me laugh so i'm no I'm a it, fan i think it was her voice and her hair that's it yeah well for those of there out there who haven't seen this movie her hair is like you know harsh bangs and then the back is kind of pulled pulled back a little it's I will mention that this movie does capture pretty much every fashion trend of the mid '90s in this party itself. Um, yeah, from the girls accurate. with the you know their short kind of pseudo bob hair, to, you know, with their chokers on, and you know the, the guys. Um, later on, there's a scene where 
inappropriate phrases muttered by Kenny's uh, crew, and um, they all look like they're straight out of a Spike Lee film uh, school days with their with their. Uh, <laughs> They're we'll talk about them when we get there. I jerseys. got something to say about them, but yeah, yeah, they definitely they touch a lot of bases here for sure, uh, fashion wise, <laughs> style wise. As and and the Kenny character uh, is an amalgamation of every bad hip hop trend that ever took place in the '90s, all en- encapsulated onto Seth Green himself. Yeah. For sure. I, I, I feel like I read that the costume designer or somebody involved in costuming on this movie actually won an Oscar for The Phantom Thread last year. But that might be our fake fact for this episode. So, you know, make sure that you fact check me on that before you send him, send him a congratulations or anything. But I feel like I read that. Uh, I have a harsh anyway. criticism for the end of the the. the of the costuming. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I look forward to that. Um so yeah, the scene ends with the foreign exchange student growling at little Kenny like a cheetah and Kenny walking away with his tail between his legs. Yeah, exactly. The dance doing the, the growly like 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 I'm doing the the Air the Panther. The, the Air Panther, <laughs> yeah. Um Kenny then asks Jana, played by Clea Duvall, another recognizable face if she wants to dance she tells him she's allergic and then gets up and walks away he then mimics throwing a fishing line at Jana's friend and reeling her in and she too gets up and walks away all while tone looks bust a move plays in the background there's a lot about this little scene here that i like first of all i love clea duvall i had like, I a second huge crush that. on her yes yeah. I, I second the faculty that. like brought her onto my radar real heavy um and yeah, I just I dig her. Uh, and she, she's another one that did a, a bounce around. Um, she she was in a lot of stuff, and then again, she was one of the Buffy the Vampire Slayer connections there. Yeah, yeah, she, I dig her. This she plays a vanishing girl. Does she? Well, I know that you and I are not her type, but it does not change the fact that I, <laughs> I really dig her. She was also sporting uh, the the exact look I was referencing with the you know the the choker and that short hairstyle. Yeah, yeah. Plus, she plus the collared T-shirt. She makes it work, man. Um, my wife Tammy actually met her while working at a restaurant a couple years back here, and she said that she was super, super nice. I think she came in a couple times to that restaurant. So, Clea Duvall, shout out. We like you here. Oh, uh, I was going to say pass on my number. Yeah, uh, I don't think she'll need it. <laughs> <laughs> no knock on you, but I don't no. think that you are what she's looking for. No. Um, the other thing about this scene is Seth Green's fucking acting in this scene. The look of joy that he has when he's reeling in the fake fish, like he's everything about it. And then the look of like utter rejection. It's like he, he found the tone of this movie. He, oh, he yeah. did it. Like it's so right. Tar- target center. I love, I love Seth Green in this fucking movie. Oh, you know, again, this could be a credit to the fact that he's, done about 75 films prior to this you know, and, and done about 150 yeah. things after this oh yeah he's, he's, he's the most his chops yeah he's definitely the most prolific guy in this in this film he's an animal he's a little red-headed animal i dig him it's a national treasure let's just be honest <laughs> meanwhile william is clearly drunk and he gives away his little how much can i drink chart to a dude doing jello shots and then Amanda walks up on the aforementioned Ashley and another girl talking about her as Press looks on. He's a, he's accosted by reminiscing guy, reminiscing guy. What do we think of reminiscing guy? Uh, it's it's good to an extent. Um, and then it just goes just a little too far. <laughs> I don't he know. Remembers the time he hit you right in the nuts. 
<laughs> yeah, the shtick is him loudly telling embarrassing stories about a person while they try to extract themselves uncomfortably from the conversation. He definitely goes for it. He's he's enthusiastic in his his speeches and his memories. It's it's fun. Um, I would probably have liked to do that uh, if I was if I was playing a character like that. I would have I would have had a great time doing it. Um, I think that just the the writing on it maybe was just a tad too contrived. Yeah, it's it's broad. He's he's not trying to play for re- reality at all, but it is funny. I mean, it makes me laugh. So I w- I'd almost be I wouldn't be surprised if he if he had improved one or two of those. Yeah, maybe. I don't know who that actor is. He's not someone I'm familiar with after this, but he he I mean, it's entertaining. Whether or not it's good acting, it's entertaining. Um so uh he gets distracted and Preston makes his move on Amanda. But as he's getting her attention, reminiscing guy returns and tells a story about Preston barfing in his backpack and Preston has to bail to minimize the damage. As he leaves, we see that Amanda was listening and she seems to find it kind of endearing, although I might be adding acting in on her behalf that Dan didn't see. I don't know, but I still I still like her. It's a little weird head turn is about all. (laughs) <laughs> you're not going to break my spirit. Definitely, she definitely turns and does a little cute little smile and then turns back and does that, you know, on repeat. Yeah. It's just that, but like a glitch in the matrix. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, then so it's uh, her Tourette's coming out. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Some, oh man. We just lost a whole contingent of Tourette's listeners right there. Thanks a lot. Uh, I'm sorry. So uh, it's not to be for Preston because this is when Ron walks up to console Amanda. Ron, played by uh, Eric Palladino. Eric Palladino, yeah. He's Amanda's second cousin. He's wearing a shiny shirt. And in my opinion, he's like the creepiest character in the movie, worse than Preston. Um, Yeah, we'll get to more of him in a minute. He turns out to be just human slime. Yeah. So... uh, Let's see. Preston, we cut back on Preston and he's tuning up Reminiscing Guy for embarrassing him in front of Amanda. And then we go back to Kenny. Now, like I said, this movie is just like fucking Family Guy, like you know, like little vignette, 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 vignette. It's like so hard to follow almost. You know what I mean? It's like just one after another, after another, after another. There's no room to breathe in this fucking movie. Yeah, but not all of them progress the film either, so. This is true. So, uh, yeah, then we go to Kenny, whose homies are razzing him, and it's abundantly clear that his friends don't respect him. They're fully willing to waste his flavor. As he sulks away, he and Mike Dexter bump into each other, and Kenny runs like a scared cat, which is probably realistic based on the size differential. Mike then comes up on one of his jock friends who's clearly rethought his plan to break up with his girlfriend, and then Mike is pissed. So, yeah, obviously, Pussy is going to win over uh, impressing Mike Dexter in this case. And should, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Rightfully so. So at the same time, the band is about to start. We're back to the fucking band that Dan likes so much here. Dan's (laughs) version of Jennifer Love Hewitt over here in the corner of the living room. And in a British accent, Brecken asks the crowd if anybody ordered a love burger. Well done, which I'll admit made me laugh. <laughs> it's it's the delivery of itself. That you know, he, yeah. he again, he's doing the mock British accent, um, and then the the well done seems to be almost like a response back to somebody ordering a love burger. <laughs> so uh, and yeah, and but before they can start, they get into a disagreement about whether or not it's acceptable to wear your own band's shirt while playing. This is the moment Dan was talking about earlier. <laughs> and then uh, in the background, we see Shermanator steal a shirt, 
And then the curtain catches fire when Brecken throws his cigarette, which I found kind of uh, crazy that he would just pitch a lit cigarette out into the room. <laughs> and uh, the girl whose party it is puts out the fire, but we can see she's really starting to melt down here. This is where the, the meltdown really begins for her. Back to Kenny, he overhears a girl crying behind him who tells her friend that because her boyfriend broke up with her for someone else, she's going to hook up with the next person she sees. Make that talk to. Yeah, yeah. Next person she talks to, which is when uh, Kenny, referring to himself as Special K, Pratt falls into the scene and uh, plays on her fragile emotional state in an attempt to seduce her. So she asks him to come to the pool house with her, and inexplicably, he asks her to wait a minute, and then he fucking bounces out of there. Now, obviously, I know where this is going, but the first time I saw this, I was like, where the fuck is he going? <laughs> like, what the hell? I a little bit, I'm like, well, good for him, because he really shouldn't take advantage of the situation like that. That That's a mentally unstable girl right there. She's going to regret this action later, maybe. But taking the moral objection out of it, where are you going, bro? Yeah, I don't know. I, I To me, this was one of those, like, okay, we need the plot to do a thing. We're just going to fucking make the plot do a thing. It didn't seem at all reasonable to me that he would fucking, you know, run off to the fucking bathroom to, like you know, do a pee and check his breath and check his underarms and, you know, not check his balls, apparently. Yeah, strap on his love kit. Yeah, so he, he as he's heading to the bathroom, he asks him if he, himself if he should put his Jimmy hat on now, uh, which, again, <laughs> is funny but stupid. <laughs> and then he sees that the line of the bathroom is, like, 12 deep. We get a quick little bit about uh, the girl whose party it is you know being pissed because somebody graffitied on her her family portrait and here comes kenny to ask if she has another bathroom and basically he tells her the foreign exchange did it which is a lie because he's mad at the foreign exchange student for chester cheating him and then she tells him to go upstairs and use the bathroom but warns but him only the lock him. is broken and only he is allowed to go use it which i felt at that point bad for the foreign exchange student because first of all he doesn't know what he's doing well, you see, the he thing can't be is, accountable. you say that, but he's he's treated in the film like he's actually mentally handicapped. It's yeah, it's it is it's, it's as far it as it goes. <laughs> it does have the air of making fun of a person with a mental disability for sure. And, um, and the fact that you know they're they're teaching him obnoxious phrases, and he's just going along with it as it is. How long has this kid been the foreign exchange student at this high school? Because it, that <laughs> I can't, I like I can't it's, like, it's like he literally <laughs> arrived that night and graduated with them. Exactly. The idea that he showed up on graduation day brand new. It's fucking amazing. Yeah. You did, um, you did kind of leave out uh, uh, what I found to be kind of a funny gag while Kenny was waiting in the, in the line for the bathroom. When the door opens up, a guy walks out with a cast uh, and there's there's a definitive line of people waiting, but then way up in the front of the line, you see a group of about 15 girls all <laughs> hustle their way into the bathroom, all simultaneously cutting the line while they're all standing there watching. Yeah, and it's an obnoxious amount of girls. It's not like three. It's like a, a no, cavalcade. I, it was like about a, 15. It looks like the running of the bulls. <laughs> <laughs> It's like never stops. It was it was a it was a funny sight gag that uh, I I want to give credit to. I agree, it's funny. I don't know why I left it out. I guess I was trying to run things along, but I appreciate <laughs> you. Uh, and then we're trying to run DMCs. It's tricky. While Kenny does all his smell checks and brushes up on his Kama Sutra, 
uh, and wets slash dries his pants. At this point, I'm sure the crying girl has already found another dude to fuck, so he's wasting his time for sure. But I digress. Downstairs, Denise takes a pot brownie to the dome, and then stoner guy played by Eric Balfour, who I'm convinced is a vampire because he looks the same then as he does now. So either he looked like he was 40 then, or he looks like he's 20 now, but he's fucking, he looks the same. Hasn't he played a vampire? I think he might have. He's, He's one of those guys that's been in like a million things and... Every fucking TV show you've ever heard of, he's had a, a role on. So and I'm pretty sure he played a vampire in Buffy the Vampire Slayer itself, and I keep coming back to that. Yeah, I mean, listen, if if Buffy's the the linchpin that holds us all together, then it, it is. I don't know why fucking Sarah Michelle Galar is not in here. <laughs> Galar. <laughs> what? Yeah, so uh, he's definitely in he? the first two, first two episodes, and he does become a vampire. Yeah, well, maybe it was real. Maybe it's a fucking documentary. Dude doesn't age. <laughs> but in this in this moment, he's a stoner guy, and he licks the frosting off of Denise's face because he, quote, doesn't want to waste it. It occurred to me at this point that this movie is really fucking weird. <laughs> like, well, on top of the line, f- a little bit. A little bit, but again, you know, let's, let's look at the reality of it. Would there be a lot of uh, marijuana in the frosting itself? Probably not. I, I gotta go. be honest. It's I don't stretch. know how I don't know how pot brownies work. Maybe it's a stretch. Maybe it's it just be. a bad gag. Maybe, but I would lift. I would lick frosting off of Lauren Ambrose's face. <laughs> uh, so carry on. Uh, well, <laughs> uh, good thing it doesn't land on Jennifer Love Hewitt because I don't know how much time they would have had to spend redoing her hair from that. Oh my god! It would have just bounced right off of that hair. That is true. It was. I love Jeff. It's kind of like a steel drum. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with her. (laughs) Flawless victory. Uh, So Denise makes her way up to the bathroom where she walks in on Kenny with a bunch of rubbers in his mouth, a blow dryer in one hand, the Kama Sutra in the other, and his pants mid-thigh. He screams at her to close the door, which she does, locking them inside the bathroom slash bank vault together. There's definitely uh, a a Three's Company feel to some of the interactions with Kenny in there, um, as well as with Preston. There's definitely that that Jack Tripper moment right there, and then Preston seeing, you know, um, have we gotten to Creepy Ron's full actions yet? Not yet. We're getting there. Well, that's Three's Company to a T. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's Three's Company, but a a little bit sexual assaulty. We'll get there in a minute. Oh, (laughs) yeah. So uh, we get a bunch of short scenes here. The band's fighting on stage. The sci-fi geeks are stargazing on the roof of the pool house. William, at the center of the party, do what was supposed to be a shot, but the filmmakers use CGI to digitally cover the shot glass with what looks to be a terribly rendered half a lemon so they could get a PG-13 rating. I shit you not. Yes, He's he's holding a fucking digital lemon. Yeah, they definitely uh, went in with an R and came out with a PG-13. Dude, they, they covered a fucking bong with a balloon at one point. It's a fucking, it's weird. But anyway, we also get a wonderful moment here where William can't feel his legs and then everybody cheers at his lack of legs. And I, that's one of those like moments you remember from a preview or something. You know, you you say that, right? And from the preview, what I remember is he repeats the phrase, I can't feel my legs and, and in Mm. the film does not. So it's one of those moments where. It, the, the preview is, is lying they to like, me. Yeah, they edited the preview so that he says, I can't feel my legs twice, but in the movie he says, I can't feel my legs, and he says, I have no legs the second yep. time. Yeah, you're totally right. It That's works funny. funnier with I can't feel my legs twice, though. I agree. I agree. They thought of that after the movie was fucking 
you know, printed and done and they're making the preview. And they're like, oh, fuck, we should have done that in the movie. But yep. it's still it's still a fun <laughs> gag. <laughs> it's got to be what it was. Uh, um, from there, it just the takes other- a downturn. <laughs> exactly. Game over. Let's not even bother doing the rest of the movie. It's out. So uh, <laughs> on the other side of the house, Rich by the way, out. this fucking house is huge. And the backyard is even huger. Oh. We'll talk about that in a minute because there's some moments where I'm like, what the fuck is going on with this geography? <laughs> um, well, they got a pool house as well. Exactly. They've got – it feels to me like the pool house has its own backyard. Like, where's the swing? We see it later. The swing? Where is that? We never see it in the backyard, right? Like, there's moments where, like, Mike is on the swing and, and Amanda is, like, in the backyard and they're, like, talking shit. But, like, they're, they're not supposed the, to be in the football same field away. Area. It seems that way. It's very weird. Anyway, on the other side of the house, Mike's two uh, jock friends both break the news that they're not going to break up with their girlfriends. And uh, we get another one of my favorite lines where one of his, his jock friends, I think the aforementioned 35-year-old jock friend you're talking about, <laughs> he says, sometimes we say things we don't mean, which I've said a million times in my own personal life as a, a nod to this movie. It just makes me laugh. That being said, I, I think he made a direct decision with his girlfriend being Jamie Presley at the time. Yeah, good call, good call. I'll take her over Mike, uh, uh, Mike slash <laughs> Peter. Just barely, though, just by a nose. Um <laughs> Cut back to Amanda and Ron, fucking Ron, and they're discuss- discussing his uh, re- her relationship with Mike. They move to the couch as Amanda talks about how Mike is the same when they started dating. She's having a bit of an identity crisis, and I, I feel like you, uh, this is one of those parts of the movie you picked up on pretty heavily of kind of the, the gaslighting that's uh, been done to her over the years by Mike Dexter. So it, she, this is this is the part where you know she supposedly gets deep, you know, according to you, and. Um, <laughs> All it is is an admission that she has been browbeaten and convinced that she means nothing, and she is basically a hollow shell and in a in a accessory for the Mike Dex- Dexter character. Um, she has been gaslit extremely at this point. So yeah, oh, and and, and and cousin Ron, you know, he takes a deep dive after figuring that out. Yeah, fucking Ron. I want to break Ron's neck. I want to fucking choke his ass unconscious. Um, I want to tear that shirt off of him and fucking uh, it's, it use feels... it as a solar panel on my roof. <laughs> the, <laughs> you know what? The shirt too, though. That shirt, man. Like, wow. Like, I don't know. Was that sateen? Yeah, that's sh- the shirt is like douchebag central. It's like it's the douchebag accessory. I actually think I had a shirt that looked like that back in the, back in the late nineties, <laughs> early two thousands. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. That was your it's wedding little, shirt. If you ever were invited bad. to a wedding. Exactly. Exactly. I've been invited to like three weddings. So, uh, all at the same the, time as this, all 20 years later. Yeah, exactly. Um, at the same time as this, Preston's out by the pool describing what is in his letter to Amanda to, uh, he's, he's talking to the camera. And there's this, like kind of endearing music playing, and it kind of feels like, like he's laying his heart out, you know, for everybody to see. He's narrating it as if he was. It's not just what's in his letter. He's narrating like it. He's actually the the, the camera work is trying to trick you into thinking that it might be Amanda that he's speaking to. Exactly, and then it turns out it's the foreign exchange student, and the foreign exchange student replies to the letter with, "Would you like to touch my penis?" Yeah, so back to making fun of the foreign exchange student who is clearly standing in for a mentally challenged person. 
Yeah, I'll say that foreign exchange students get a bum rap here, you know, um, especially, you know, <laughs> you know and, and it, it doesn't. people in general, Dan, I think, <laughs> a bum rap. Well, yeah. and, and in teen movies, it, it doesn't necessarily take much of a better step with uh, American Pie on the on the horizon. At least it's all better than uh, 16 Candles, though. Yeah, 16 Candles. <laughs> That's oh, the ultimate duck offensive. Dung. The ultimate offensive foreign exchange student. <laughs> that is, that is, I want to uh, do that movie so bad on this uh, show. That's uh, yeah. It's going to be a hard one to talk about. <laughs> I'm going to long for the days of lots of fag talk. You know. Well, you know, and, that and point. honestly, like um, you know, you mentioned Sixteen Candles briefly here. Uh, that's what I feel like. They're they're trying to evoke imagery of Michael Anthony Hall. Um, and 16 candles with uh, the cronies of um, William Fitchner, um, his two geek friends. <laughs> William Fitchner. William Fitch- that's that's uh, an David. actor that I, I love. <laughs> William Lichter is the Lichter, character in this thank movie. Thank you. Yes, I'm tongue tied. I, you know what? Like anytime we could talk about William Fickner, I'm in. That guy's fantastic. <laughs> but yes, we'll talk about Go one day. They're definitely trying to evoke uh, Michael Anthony Hall from Sixteen Candles in at least the blonde uh, geek friend. Yeah, I see it. And the other one's probably doing a a curly haired version of uh, John Cusack, maybe. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, yeah, back to the Preston does not want to touch the foreign exchange student's penis and is is done with that conversation. And then we're back to Amanda and Ron with his fucking seventies hair. Uh-huh. He, uh, he makes his move and Preston walks in while Ron is on top of Amanda. And instead of stopping what is clearly <laughs> sexual assault, Preston looks heartbroken and sulks off missing the moment where Amanda calls Ron sick and leaves angrily. I watched it back twice because I want to make sure I wasn't crazy. It does not look like a nice makeout session no. happening. It really does look like sexual assault from yeah. from the. They show you Preston's view of what what he should be seeing, she, and it yeah. looks like she's she, being assaulted. She kind of is flailing. Um, yeah, and he, like I said, he turns it into a Jack Tripper moment where you know he sees what he thinks he sees and reacts upon that. It bums me out, man. It bummed me out watching it. I don't like to see Jennifer Love Hewitt being treated that way. You know where Cousin Ron would have fit in with that styling? He would have fit in, you know, if, if he took that sateen shirt and traded it for, like, a you know a leather vest, you could have put him in the Warriors. He could he, he yeah. could have been riding this, you know, the, the yeah. subway in the Warriors at that point. Yeah, he had Warriors hair for sure. Give him, like, a fedora or something like that, and he would have yeah. fit right in. Fuck that guy. I don't know if, like, it's a it's a... <laughs> knock or not or if it's like me saying like good job eric paladino for making such a douchey character (laughs) you really sold it (laughs) he did because i hated that fucking guy um so outside now preston's feeling sorry for himself he throws away his letter to amanda then we see mike dexter hit on a very adorable young selma blair as you mentioned before sitting on a swing set cute as a button yeah but his mysticism has worn off and they're not they're not interested um i guess you know he's now damaged goods after breaking up with amanda Mainly just because the plot requires him to be. I don't really think that that would happen that way. But probably not. Not he wouldn't be cre- like so. His fall wouldn't have been that pronounced so fast. No, I think Selma Blair would have been down. But yeah, I don't know. Anyway, um, it's clear that he's starting to regret breaking up with Amanda because you know his 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 fall from from the lofty heights is apparent here to us as the viewer. Plus, his cronies are not complying with his plan. 
No, it's as if he doesn't have any control over any of them. Um, you should just go back to gaslighting uh, Amanda. I mean, listen, when you got it good, why why change things? <laughs> if it's working. Mm-hmm. So cut to Preston again, who has now left the party and is driving his sorrows away, uh, while at the same time the universe conspires via yearbook girl and a bunch of other randos to pull his letter out of the trash and put it in the checks mix bowl in front of Amanda. Yeah, they definitely gave the second unit some work on that one. <laughs> I was gonna say it's like a fucking Rube Goldberg machine. What's, yeah, what are they, I know they what called? You're like a fucking mouse trap. It's like yeah. a bunch of random things happen to get the letter to go from the garbage to the yeah. bowl that you've are got, utterly unrealistic. Yeah, you've got gum on a shoe that takes it to like a beer keg that rolls it into you know somebody else who picks it up with a with a hockey stick that then shoots it into a bowl of Chex Mix. Yeah, it's again back back to Looney Tunes, very much like a cartoon. Um, but before we get to see her read it, we watch Kenny and Denise slowly opening up to each other in the bathroom, and uh, then we see Preston losing his mind while laying on the hood of his car. And uh, as I mentioned, he uh, was doing so outside John Marshall High School, uh, where that flashback scene was filmed. You, you mentioned Kenny and Denise opening up to each other. That's probably in in. The fact that this the movie has all these unrealistic stereotypes that might be the closest it comes to like a slightly sincere realistic moment in the film. I mean, it's the two best actors in the movie, so it would yeah, make sense. Yeah, but at the same time, it's 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 also I, I would say more realistic of a scenario because I think everybody has that friend somewhere in life where they've walked away from or abandoned that friend and had uh, maybe some regrets that they're able to bring back, and they probably that. The heart to heart that they have is 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 relatively realistic to something I feel like I've I've probably experienced or secondhand experienced. I agree. It seemed to me like maybe one of the writers actually had something like that happen and you know milked their own past for that stuff. I, I agree with you. The only thing I don't like about it is that they're trapped in a bathroom because the doorknob broke off. Yeah, like that's just stupid. But. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. It would have been better. Here's here's what it would have been better. It would have been better if, like, Kenny bumped into Mike, and then they, like, got into, like, an altercation that scared the shit out of Kenny, and Mike was like, if I see you again, I'm going to fucking kill you. And then Kenny hid in the bathroom. Yeah. And then when Denise came in and caught him, he, like, coaxed her to stay there because he, like, was feeling shitty and wanted some company or something. There would have been a way to make it work better than trapping yeah. a fucking broken bathroom door. Take your Take your idea and turn it into the fact that you know, she has this residual guilt for, you know, them not being friends anymore. So she decides to, you know, buddy, buddy up with him and keep him company while he collects himself. Yeah. Make him feel like less of a, a puss because he's hiding. Whatever the case, I feel like there's a better way to do that. Although maybe wouldn't have been as quick. You would have had to do more actual work there. So whatever. Um, also worth noting that John, John Marshall High School I'm talking about is where uh, parts of Girls Just Want to Have Fun was filmed. <laughs> and I want to make you watch that fucking movie so uh, bad. The <laughs> Tour de Force. I genuinely like that movie. All right, well, I'll get my revenge somehow. <laughs> I'm sure you will. Uh, anyway, back to Preston. It turns out it's Barry Manilow's birthday today. Uh, not today when we're recording, but today in the movie. Yeah, and that's, uh, the that's radio a station convenient yeah. device i think that they throw in there which oh yeah that is yeah, backed up it's... with a less convenient excuse that he's going to be on the radio from his sold out concert in tokyo which i don't know man i got to do some <laughs> i got to do some time zone math here but 
the fact that it's maybe two in the morning and we're we're not sure if we're at East Coast, West Coast, Midwest uh, here. But yeah. then comparatively to Tokyo, would he be having? Is it is it two in the afternoon? I, mean, I don't I don't know. It just it seems like it's seems like there should have been a little bit of fact checking fact checking there by the uh, you know production team. Yeah, it's not reasonable at all that Barry Manilow would be taking phone calls at a radio station <laughs> at any point, much less when he's supposed to be in Tokyo. But yeah, a radio uh, station at I don't know. Mystery Town. <laughs> he's gonna exactly. he's gonna walk away from his sold out show in Tokyo to to call into the radio station. <laughs> I love where they were lighting up the Barry Manilow oh, aspect right. of this fucking movie. You know, it, well they uh, they hint they kind of put a you know a linchpin on the fact that you know he that that Preston feels this serendipitous moment has, has resurged because he heard Mandy on the radio. Oh yeah. No, they don't, they don't give themselves any room to breathe here. It's all about this fucking Barry Manilow shit. (laughs) They painted Um, themselves into a corner. They really did. I think that's what happened. Um, I don't know, whatever, but fuck it, man. I don't know. He's in Tokyo somewhere. (laughs) They work. Let's just roll it. It's like, why even do that? It's just so, it's such like a making it make even less sense for no reason. But, uh, Preston Halls is asked to a payphone because he needs to ask Barry advice about his situation, I guess. <laughs> He's going to ask about fucking the song Mandy, whether or not it's about his dog or something. Yeah. Um, and then while we listen to a pretty decent song in Farther Down by Matthew Sweet, which I don't I don't know that I like that song except for I hear it here. And I'm like, oh, what's that? I need well, to check that out. I need to listen to that song. You mentioned Matthew Sweet. He's also, he was... Um... He's credited as something with the music from the film itself, so I don't know oh, okay. if he did well, any score work or yeah. if he was, you know, a part of uh, putting together the the actual songs that were featured. Soundtrack, yeah, well, that's cool. I didn't know that. I didn't notice that, but yeah, it's a good song and it, it works well here for the moment where Amanda is reading Preston's letter to herself, <laughs> and it, she doesn't read it out loud. We don't get the fun little voiceover her, of her reading it, which would have been Thankfully. pretty great. Yeah, <laughs> like me and Dan saying exact opposite things right there. But, uh, you know, Amanda, visibly affected, rushes off to try to track down the author, whom it becomes clear she doesn't know by name. And I See, said it like sh- that just to piss you God, off. She should be visibly affected by finding a letter of that nature and immediately run off to the police Let's department the is what she should have done, man. And, and the fact that she doesn't know the who the dude mix. is... <laughs> She found the letter. Exactly. Whoever is out there listening to this, if you find a letter that seems to have some obsessive, uh, you know, wording of you, and you don't know who the fuck wrote it, call the police. Get the fuck out of that house. Don't take any chances. Oh Um, man! But instead. She seems to be be stoked by it. Um, Yeah, instead of getting a restraining order against this mystery man. Yeah, further proving her low self-esteem. Mike really did a number on her. Yeah, clearly, if that's that's her reaction. So uh, while Preston tries to get through to the radio station on a payphone outside of the same diner that, uh, that Mike and his cronies were eating an early supper before the party... Um, the always adorable Jenna Elfman shows up dressed as an angel, but also a stripper. And so she may actually know Jamie Presley's character right? uh, through, from work. <laughs> now, now, correct me if I'm wrong. Do you, or, well, you're not going to be able to, correct me if you disagree. Do you feel that <laughs> the, the way that they had Jenna Elfman enter the scene 
it looked like they're going to take some sort of metaphysical turn in the film there. And, you know, because at some point you like, she's coming out of like a foggy, smoky, um, walk on where you see the, the shadow and then you see the angel wings and you don't see her and close up until, you know, she's engaged in conversation and you're like, is this, are they just trying to trip you out here? Because it seemed I like they were trying to trick you so, for a split second there that this is when we were be... talking earlier about the flashback, and I said that I think we're dealing with the unreliable narrator here, and I think it's very possible that she is a figment of his imagination. <laughs> you know, it's it, it, I, and I can see again. This is another device that they were trying to enact here. And um, what year was um, what year was chasing Amy? Chasing Amy was ninety seven. Okay, because I felt like they were trying to have their their chasing Amy moment with Jenna Elfman, and I don't How mean do chase, mean? I don't mean chasing Amy the movie, but the story the the story that she then goes into about trying to um, explain life. It it just seemed like it was not an echo of Silent Bob spilling the chasing Amy moment, but. <laughs> it, it, you know, it's it's that that part where you know she she tells him about her moment where she was in Did love with Scott cuffs? Baio. <laughs> no, where she's in love with Scott Baio, and you know she she regrets that, and that's that's a moment that's kind of echoed in her mind for for you know the last I guess could be ten years at that point. Yeah. Um, and it just sort of seemed like they were using her character as as that narrative. I mean, if you if you look at Chasing Amy, Silent Bob obviously doesn't speak until he relates that that anecdote. Um, yeah, and then she's not featured in this film in any means until she's used as a device to tell him, yeah. you know, he needs to fucking yeah. pull the trigger. I know what you mean. Yeah, no, definitely. She's definitely. There's a name for that. Is it MacGuffin? There's like a film name for it, like a yeah. filmmaking word that kind of means like you need something to come in and explain the shit or like like make a turn have the have the main character make a turn and that's yeah she's definitely playing the silent bob role here yeah instead of being silent she's just not in the movie exactly (laughs) (laughs) she is she comes in and and like she's you know it's it's the pretty much you know talking you know it, it brings the end of the second act and it precedes the third act here of which you know now pressing gets set on his mission with conviction yeah, so Silent Jen and Elfman hangs up on Preston's call so uh, she can call a cab. And then Preston has a meltdown that honestly is kind of scary. Like his energy is a bit more menacing than I think is appropriate here. Dude, like his eyes freaking get wild. Out. Yeah, he's freaking out. And I feel like when we get to the facts portion, some of that will make sense, but I'll wait for that. Uh, either way, Silent Jenna holds her own and puts him in his place and... Uh, then she admits to having a thing for Scott Bayo, like you said, and she talks Preston off the ledge and sends him back on his path. Uh, Hopefully you know. your fun fact is that, you know, um, he, he was up for 19 hours straight at that point. <laughs> and, they, and, and that was the 47th take of that moment. Because It might technically be the opposite oh, of that, God. but I'll, I'll save it for, the, for later and it'll be a surprise. Right um, he, he tweaks. Yeah, he goes nuts right there. Like I said, it, it was a, like too menacing. I don't think it was. It was inappropriately it hostile. Was, it was a half a step away from him trying to strike her. Kind of. I thought that's what was coming, but uh, I was like, "Damn, did I forget this scene? <laughs> the scene where he beats the <laughs> shit out of Silent Jenna Elfman." Which, by the way, I never cared one way or the other for Jenna Elfman, but I did like her in that moment. 
I mean, barring the cigarette smoking, I, f- I found yeah. her very cute in this scene. I remember thinking that back then, and I still think it, but I am so um, disgusted by cigarette smoking that yeah. it's hard for me to overlook it. Uh, and she and was also... It's a me thing. She was she's also pops up as uncredited here as well, and it also has that feel of... The fact that she just kind of comes and goes, and that's it, it also felt like... <laughs> maybe maybe I'm, I'm wrong here, but it did feel like, hey, I'm going to do these guys a solid. You know, I know these guys, yeah. or I'm, I'm filming the same day as they were. <laughs> You know? Yeah, it could it could very well be. It's um, it, it it's kind of kind of reminiscent of uh you know when in your recording studio back in the seventies and you know you had uh Led Zeppelin in one room and you, right. you, know, you had David Bowie in another <laughs> and like you know like you know you, you shared musicians you know studio musicians that just popped in on a session for a minute. That's awesome. Yeah, they're they're all filming on the same back lot and just swapping. Well, like fucking incestuous. Think about it. You you mentioned how these these sets and you know uh, locales have been utilized to death. It, maybe there was a crossover. Yeah, there's another thing filming on the other side. Of that exactly. Like you know, they got a, oh, you got fucking Jenna Elfman's trailer over there, and someone just goes and knocks <laughs> on it. Like, hey, we're looking for this moment. You know, we just we'll write it in right now. You're already wearing the angel costume. Hey, Let's boom! Just fucking make it happen. That's funny. So back at the party, William gets on stage in place of the band and uh, does like some Guns N' Roses karaoke. And I I remember this being a little more coherent than it actually is in the movie. I was like, the fuck is this? Like he wins the crowd over because that's what the script says is supposed to happen. But like, I feel like they would be laughing so hard at this fucking guy. Yeah, it's it's unrealistic um, by any stretch of the imagination. But at the same time. Um, it was probably fun for them to shoot. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine, especially for him, uh, his his performance there results him in like all the background act extra girls in the sh- in the the movie wanting to go to the makeout room with him. So, yeah. kudos to to young Charles. It would have been more realistic if during this moment, um, he was just over in the corner doing this while everyone kind of gave him weird sideways glances, but. Uh... That would have been awesome. It would have been funny if it showed like his point of view and everybody's into it, and then it cut to him like singing with no music behind him, and everybody's looking at him like he's crazy. Right, <laughs> that right. I that would I would have bought a hundred percent. Maybe yeah. that's what happened. We just never got to see the reality of the situation. It's all in his head. This whole thing is fucking in Preston's head anyway. So right. I don't know why we're bothering trying to make sense of it. Um, the, the dude that sets up the Guns N' Roses scene though, where he jumps on with the boombox and says, yeah. "I'll be the band, dude." It's like. It, it I I can't think of that guy's name right now, but it, he seems like he's what Adam Devine became. Yeah, no, for sure. That's a hundred percent spot on. Yep, agreed. So outside, Mike Dexter is sitting alone with Trip McNeely. Uh, <laughs> well, Trip McNeely shows up. Yeah, Trip McNeely shows up with a with a six pack. You know, he's half drank. It's a very basic Ghost of Christmas Future type situation. So absolutely, it's, it's like. He's visited by the future him, and Trip McNeely basically tells him that he's he's fucked and college sucks, and he's not going to get laid, and he needs to get back together with Amanda. Well, he he asks if he's still with Amanda, and uh, Mike lies and says he is, and he says that he should stay with her. So yeah, of definitely course, after uh, Jerry O'Connell calls him out as as a nice piece, or calls yeah, her out yeah, as I a forgot, nice piece. I forgot to mention it's Trip McNeely is Jerry O'Connell. In a fun little, another, maybe another uncredited, uncredited role. Yep, definitely yeah. uncredited. Again, another favorite to the uh, to, to the production uh-huh. team. He's pretty good in this scene, though. It's a good scene. 
Yeah. I, I, I like you know, him. I like him. He seems legit drunk to me in the scene. <laughs> like, I don't know if it's <laughs> acting or if he was drunk, but it's pretty believable. He's, he and he's a, a nice belch as well. That is believable as the, uh, you know, real, not, I don't know, Vakalicent, uh jock that's come back to a high school party. Yeah, he's like the jock that's a little soft. So he's let it go a little bit. I, yeah. can, I can see that. So Amanda is also outside, but in a different part of the house, I guess. I, I This is what I was talking about before. We're like, we got uh, Mike and Trip McNeely sitting on the fucking swing set and then cut to Amanda's like talking to people in the yard. And I'm like, where the fuck is that swing set? Yeah. It's obviously not in uh, like eyesight from the backyard. Otherwise, they would be like staring daggers at each other or he would be staring long longingly at like they're talking about her right in that scene so she's obviously not visible in the scene so where the fuck is that swing set right considering he asks if they're still together and you know it's yeah i'm not convinced i'm not convinced with the uh, geography of this house's backyard certainly uh but whatever i mean i I, was on a lot of land (laughs) i i did uh i did like the the moment in which he does refer to them them both as uh guys like us are a dime a dozen you know, it, it, that was probably the most eye-opening moment for Dexter, Mike Dexter's character. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know that Peter Fascinelli is a dime a dozen, but <laughs> I'll, I'll let you be the judge of that. Um, anyway, yeah, Amanda's out out back somewhere else in the in the yard <laughs> talking to Jason Siegel and some other random guy about Preston, trying to figure out first of all what he looks like and second of all where he is. This is a, an interesting scene to me because the guy that isn't Jason Siegel clearly improved a line where he's talking about Velma from Scooby-Doo being a hip, hip lady, mm-hmm. which is a direct bite from Dazed and Confused. Right. Like, clearly that guy had seen that movie, and I feel like the directors maybe just weren't familiar with the line and didn't catch it. It got in the fucking movie, and then there it is forever. This guy basically ripping off Dazed and Confused in his improv bit. Because yeah. I don't think they wrote that. I think that's that's an improv thing. So well, They may as well have been channeling the uh, Gilgan's Island you know, references that the girls do in Dazed and Confused. Yeah, yeah, maybe. But again, Jason Siegel showing up here for a minute back before we knew who he was. Yeah, it was a very quick minute. Yeah, he has one other moment later, which I'll mention here in a sec. Uh, but a drunk Mike finds Amanda back in the house. They're both back in the house now at this point, and he makes a play at reconciliation And while everybody at the party watches. And Amanda burns him to the ground, and then gives the, and then he gives the line that I've been throwing down for 20 years, which is, <laughs> I'll kick everyone's ass in this room. <laughs> yeah, and, and clearly they enjoyed that because if you go all the way to the end of the credits, um, just as they finish off, they, they throw that quote right back up there. Do they? I yeah. didn't, I they didn't throw, do that. Well, they throw the audio clip back up there, yeah. Right, yeah, no, it's funny. It'd be awesome if that was an improv. It would make me like Peter Fascinelli even more. And um, I will also say it's probably one of the more realistic lines um, when it comes to that because I feel that that is something that um, – you know, a guy would be grasping at straws for would say in that moment. Yeah, I'll kick everyone's ass in this room. I'll kick everyone's ass in this room. <laughs> it's fucking. I love it. It's so fucking stupid, but it's awesome. Um, this is also another scene with a with classic homophobic slur that we've been talking about here. That's played for laughs when someone at the crowd yells "fag" at Mike after Amanda bails on him, and it's it definitely you know, is he, the he, punctuation, you know, to to that burn that she lays down on him. Yeah, she it's 
apparently it's the worst thing you can say to Mike Dexter, which makes me think that he probably suspects that dicks taste delicious because otherwise he wouldn't be so insecure about, you know, that. But I don't know. Well, whatever. It it was Um, the 90s. (laughs) It was definitely the 90s. Uh, after this scene, there's an insert where you can see someone doing some crazy backflips in the yard, and apparently that was Ethan Embry doing backflips. Hmm. He, he, I guess he did gymnastics before, and like they just had him on camera doing fucking backflips in the yard, and they threw it in there. But <laughs> and it's funny because he's wearing his outfit like from the movie. So, huh. it's, gotta, but it's I a far enough that. shot. Yeah, it's it's pretty weird. It's kind of shadowy. I, I, I know what you're talking about. It's 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 relatively shadowy. Though. Yeah, or, it's a wide or, shot, and, it, and the lighting shot. is pretty dim back at that point. It's pretty funny. Maybe in that scene you could see where the fuck the swing set is. I, I want to go back and pause it and look. The swing set was uh, another house. <laughs> <laughs> Down the street somewhere. That would have so, been more uh, plausible if it was like a multi-house party. but Yeah, I mean, like, I don't know. Maybe it was and we just never saw the other house. Maybe it was. Maybe we saw the other house we didn't just realize it was two houses. We were assuming this there whole time go. it was one house. Um, one where Love Love Burger was at, and one where exactly. uh, everyone was dancing to you know Funky Cole Medina. <laughs> That's fucking Funky Cole Medina, dance dancing for the at home <laughs> viewers. Um, so then we get reminiscing guy telling Amanda that he had the hugest boner when they danced at the <sighs> sock hop, and then Jason Siegel <laughs> offers Amanda some watermelon. <laughs> and I, the idea is that like every guy she comes in contact with is trying a line on her or whatever. But it made me feel like someone slipped LSD in my drink. It was such a weird kind of succession of of lines and 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 interactions. There, it's pretty bizarre to me. But Preston shows up to the party, and this time he's on a mission. He finds Amanda and yells "I love you" at her, and then he goes on like a rant. But before he can reveal that he's the author of the note, she aggressively rejects him in front of everyone and leaves him to stew in his juices. Which is yet another another three company, company moment. moment. Yeah, for sure. And uh, back inside, a very drunk William finds a very emotional Mike, and Mike makes it clear that that he has regrets, and it seems like they might actually become drunk buddies. So uh, maybe maybe the the sci-fi geeks won't have to chloroform them, and they can just watch them for long enough and catch them in the act. <laughs> well, there's there's definitely a part in in that scene itself where it. I think it it culminates in Mike apologizing for tripping William uh, at at a time when he had to give a speech, and there's a long long pause. It draws out, and you know Mike's or William tells him that's in the past. That's in the past, and he goes, "Yeah, when was that?" And he goes, "That was this morning at graduation." Yeah. My my delivery is not uh, funny, but I found the line to be kind of funny because because they it don't is. they don't hit you in the face with it right at the right off the bat. It it takes a couple beats. Yeah, no, it's 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 a cleverly written little bit, and it made me laugh too. And also, it makes Mike's like seeming regret and apology a little less uh, sincere feeling, just knowing that like yeah, ten minutes more, ago he was more alcohol fueled. Yeah, him feeling sorry for himself. Um. Back upstairs with Kenny and Denise, and they are taking their newly rekindled friendship up a notch when Denise (laughs) kisses Kenny. Um, And then that's we cut back away from them. So, like I said, it's just like one little bit cut, one little bit cut, one little bit cut. So fucking weird movie to start with on this. (laughs) Yeah, I'm gonna flip though. It was Kenny kissed Denise. Was it? Yeah, Kenny kisses Denise, and she looks at him like caught off guard. Which which one's Kenny? 
Yeah, Kenny. Kenny's the one with the goggles on his forehead. The whole movie. Okay, got you. Denise is the one with the red hair. Okay, yeah. I'm, I'm back on board. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. <laughs> then we see Amanda leaving the party, and the yearbook girl catches her to ask for a signature. When Amanda looks in the yearbook to see Preston's picture and realizes that she shot down the author of the note, she runs back to the party. I thought I thought it was funny that Preston signed her yearbook. Nice to meet you. Like when he signed her yearbook, it was the first time he'd ever talked to her. Right. <laughs> like, I'm sure that's a thing. I'm sure there's people who have people sign their yearbook that they never talked to once. But it seems like so crazy to me. It it seems crazy in the fact that I wouldn't have had somebody I don't know sign a yearbook. No fuck no. I mean I can't. I I don't think I did the yearbook thing any time after maybe freshman year of high school. No, I did actually remember. I remember signing. I thought it would be funny one year to pick a random girl that like had a funny picture and sign her picture on everybody's <laughs> yearbook that asked me to sign their yearbook. And I did it c- constantly, like probably a hundred yearbooks with that picture signed with my name. And then later when I got back together with an ex-girlfriend, we were talking and she told me that she had seen that I was signing this girl's picture on like everybody's yearbook. And she thought I was the biggest asshole. <laughs> Like, like, not funny at all to her. And I was like, well, you really missed the joke then. <laughs> I, like, I, I, meant, I did it to be funny. I wasn't making fun of the girl whose picture I was signing. I just picked a random weird picture to sign. Oh, it's very sad that she didn't appreciate your douchebaggery. She did not appreciate my douchebaggery. And it was some substantial douchebaggery. <laughs> yeah, me at 16 was not a... 16 or 17 yeah honestly i'm not that much different let's let's be honest yeah i mean i i've i think over the last three four years at some point i pulled my my senior yearbook out and it was it was hard for me to even remember some people who signed my yearbook then and those were people i knew so wow i i wish i still had some of my old yearbooks i don't i don't have them anymore they're gone i will never see them again and you sold them to me i've accepted that i sold them (laughs) (laughs) fucking buying yearbooks um so <laughs> bought them at a garage sale for 40 cents yeah exactly i'm i maybe would that's a good price um so amanda doesn't find preston because he's left the party again like a fucking dickhead he's driving around he's like, quite you know, a like, baby man he's a baby dude he's driving around like a young ted bundy at this point <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's got his he's got the cast on his arm uh-huh he's got a cast on his arm and a rape kit in the back seat it's definitely got a roll of duct tape and fucking flex cuffs or some shit. He's he's fully prepared. He's just he's like gonna use all that anger and energy to put it towards something more productive. Um, more productive and, than raising his eyebrows bizarrely. Yeah, and just opening his eyes as wide as possible. But uh, back to Kenny and Denise, who at this point are now making the beast with two backs on the bathroom floor, and then William is you know trying to cheer up a slightly more sympathetic Mike. We're basically just cutting from person to person now at this point, just giving up. It's like we're inching towards the finish line. Yeah. Trying like to a yard at these, a time. Trying to resolve all the, uh, the threads. Seems that way. Uh, then there's the, uh, scene where Kim, Kenny's homies try to be street with the black kids. And one of them uses the N word causing the kids to chase them out. And like, I get what they're doing there. They're making fun of those guys. The, not the, the black guys but the kenny's stupid friends Uh but like everything about that 
scene was like, Ugh, just no, we we don't need to do this, do we? Not only that, but the fucking the black kids all look like ten years older than anybody else. Right, they're all they, like dressed really nicely, and they're much better looking than anybody else around them. And like, they it's definitely weird. They definitely looked like they were, you know, um, fraternity brothers or something. Mm-hmm. And it also made me feel like, you know what, there's some diversity in this cast, obviously. There's a couple of people um, not white. But when you see, like, four or five of them all standing together there in that moment, you're like, where the fuck were they in the rest of the movie? Like, why Why is there, like, what? wait a minute, what's going on? It seemed very, like, oh, look, there's a clump of black people right there. It was, like, stood they, they out were, to me significantly. They were filming another movie at another, you know, the joining lot. <laughs> They asked them to come over. Oh, boy. Hence the fact that they were all dressed similarly. They were actually shooting school days with Spike Lee. And the idea that they would would do that and then bring them over and then have this white guy say the (laughs) N-word to them. Like, what? It was fucking weird. I don't know. I didn't like it. Reminiscent of Kentucky Fried movie. Yeah. Yeah, no. it, It... It was weird. That scene is a weird vibe, and I will skip it. Um... Anyway, the band is finally going to play their set, you know, now as part of their, quote, reunion tour or something like that. When the (laughs) cops bust in, everyone fucking scatters, uh, including Mike and William, who head back towards the pool house. uh, And you know where this is going. Yeah, I do like the fact that they get as far as as, as Donald Faison with his drum clicks. You know, he's he's counting off the you know the fact that they're about to rip into their very first song at their very first show, which is their reunion tour. Uh huh. It's and this one's going to be a hit too. It's too bad it didn't pan out. <laughs> but yeah, the sci-fi geeks enact their plan, mistaking William for a jock, and they knock both William and Mike out with this chloroform mixture they've got. And then they pose William and uh, Mike in a lurid embrace while scattering the most random assortment of items around and on them. And I'm pretty sure I saw a half-eaten hostess snowball among those items. Well, they put the. I thought they were. I don't know. I, I thought they were like like foam clown noses, and then if you look at they put them they put them on his nipples, and then they take one off, and then it looks like they took a bite out of it and put it back. So maybe it was a snowball. Maybe it was I a clown think that's, nose. Dude, I think that's a fucking hostess snowball. <laughs> it looked uh, too artificial, <laughs> even for a hostess snowball. Dude, I've eaten a lot of hostess snowballs, <laughs> and I'm telling you, I think that was a hostess snowball. So again, well, this that that the the placing of the props. Um, Again, echoed uh, Heather's for me with uh, yeah as as they staged the the um, you know the dual suicide um, between the two jock bullies where they yeah had you know Christian Slater is is explaining the the props and why they make sense to give the motivation <laughs> as to why they killed themselves right well that's, that's these what I felt. don't these don't make any fucking sense They're no but I felt it was evoking random. that. Yeah, I mean, it's all—it's very possible this whole thing was a nod to Heather's. It wouldn't surprise me, but it's weird. And it's its also weird because it's so, like, PG, like, not... You know what I mean? Like, they're, they pull yeah, like their pants said, down no... <laughs> but, but leave their tidy whities up. And, like, when, they, when there's, like, a quick scene of them pulling up Mike Dexter's shirt, it made me feel, like, uncomfortable for a second. Like, oh, that's <laughs> kind of gross. Not, not that Peter Fascinelli's bare chest is gross, but just the idea of, like, this fucking... You know, sci-fi dude doing that to like, you know, they're basically sexually assaulting these two guys. <laughs> so it's like fucking weird, you well, know. And again, you know, like you say, the the props are more random, you know, and and they definitely seem more wacky than you know the 
they could have gone the route of attaching nipple clamps to them or something that, you know, chained right. together. And... The fact that you thought they're clown noses, it just lends to the fact that it's like, what, just random shit. Like, there's a fucking rubber squid thrown in there. Right, A right. fucking, uh, uh, what, one of those fucking paddles for tennis, t- table tennis, right? Like, <laughs> it's just random and, like, not very, it's like pseudo-sexual, but really nothing about it is sexual. <laughs> you know, right. it's just like yeah, there's the, they're no, sort of half naked. <laughs> there's no ball gag or anything. It's a weird. It's weird. I mean, I guess the idea is it's supposed to be sort of innocent. Like they're they're trying to do this thing that's not innocent, but because they're nerds, they don't realize that their version of like kinky is like stupid. I guess yeah. maybe that it's the point, but the whole thing is weird. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, they realize that it's William, and then they run away because they're fucking nerds. <laughs> so whatever. Because yeah. um, these nerds have no remorse. No, they're just like, fuck it, leave him there laying naked no. amongst Mike Dexter for the cops to come. Like, not good friends at all. Um, I, yeah. Are you leaving out the fact that uh, during the cops' raid, um, this is where Blink-182 makes their uh, soundtrack <laughs> arrival? I had left it out, but it is yeah. true. It's uh, what, it, Is it What's My Name Again? Uh, no, it's Damn It that what pops it? up. Oh, it's pre. Yeah. Okay, that's that's older Blink-182. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah, I heard it, and I thought, oh, that's Blink-182. Well, it's definitely got that frantic guitar riff that, you know, leads, leads everyone running in different directions and scattering. Yeah. It's it's the scatter it's, song. It's apropos. It makes sense. So, yeah, the cops close down the party. Denise and Kenny are now poised coital, and uh, Kenny gets embarrassed when Denise implies that he is a one-pump chump. Mm-hmm. Then the girl whose house it is busts in on them, and Denise leaves angrily while Kenny gets dressed. All right, so why why does the hostess all of a sudden look like she just you know came out of the accused? I mean, <laughs> at this <laughs> point, the the, the breakdown is, is like ultimate. <laughs> yeah, I think the idea is that she's just like reached the end of her rope and she's. Like I mean, she her looks mind. like she was more assaulted than anyone else in this film by this point because <laughs> she's got stains on her, her dress is ripped and half undone, her makeup is running, her hair is everywhere, and, and honestly, she just looks like she spent you know some time on the pinball machine and the accused. <laughs> You just got me. You just got me on tape laughing at a rape joke, dude. That's rough. That's terrible. I don't, I don't want to edit that out, but that's rough, man. This is like episode two of this fucking podcast. That's terrible. <laughs> oh my god. All right. Well, thank this you for is, this that. Is, this it, is part of my criticism of some of the uh, some of the costuming and, and so on. Yeah, they went hard there at the end. <laughs> I'm not sure. I don't imagine that that's what they were thinking when they did it, but I could see your point. Um, yeah, she she's had a rough night. <laughs> a rough night, a little bit. A little bit of a rough night. So, um, so yeah, outside, <laughs> moving on. Outside, Kenny catches up to Ouch. Denise, and they yeah, they both apologize and seal it with a kiss. Again, I it's a good, it's a cute little relationship here. That's a good little teaming. I mean, yeah, those I are can, gonna be some fucking redheaded babies, though. Yeah, I can, I can see, I can see the little back and forth on that. You know, uh, the misunderstanding, the the pride getting in the way. So it's again, yeah, everything about that is realistic. I remember my first time and um, my second and third fourth time and you know it, it yeah i can relate would your flavor have been slamming with somebody else? 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, my flavor it slams similarly with most people, but it slams the most with my wife. Oh, God. Um, where was I? So later, William's parents pick him up from jail. We don't see his parents, but the implication is they're out there, and it's revealed that Mike told the cops that he forced William to drink alcohol, saving William from getting in trouble with his parents. So. We have like a little bit of a redemption arc here for Mike Dexter taking the bullet for for this whole thing, which, again, I, it seems like Mike was drunk enough that he wouldn't like wake up from his stupor and feel any kind of Not warm, just fuzzy feelings towards William. But Dude, if if they had anything that resembled chloroform, both of them would have had pounding migraines. <laughs> they would have been vomiting. You know, when, that's where up. it falls apart. <laughs> It's all right there. <laughs> exactly. You're right. I don't know why I even bothered with these notes. <laughs> um, so The guy went to MIT. <laughs> yeah, he is a very smart fella. So uh, we also get a final scene here of Amanda packing up her pictures and Preston laying in bed, probably fantasizing about skinning Amanda and wearing her like clothes. <laughs> then the next day, Denise tells Preston that she and Kenny are dating. And uh, <sighs> I think they're at that same fucking diner that we've been talking about that is is just a movie set but he tells her that he his attempts with amanda ended in failure and he leaves on a somber note headed towards like i guess wherever and we find out the train station yeah he's going to dartmouth right i guess so that's what his little info card said so we get a quick wrap up uh see reminiscing guy and yearbook girl are having breakfast together and mike is still an asshole when william sees him and foolishly tries to act like they're friends yeah it's Um, it's it's another uh breakfast club moment that they evoke there you know the part where you know if you see me in the halls are you gonna look the other way and definitely mike dexter does his version of looking the other way we're gonna talk about breakfast club uh, in a future episode but it's like just thinking about those scenes in the breakfast club makes my stomach hurt it like chokes me up i don't even have to see the acting it's so well written and well performed and it's so the opposite of what's happening right here. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, they're going for different Uh, vibes, so I'm not mad at this movie, but when you compare it to like a real, a well-made film, you know, it's like the, the cracks are hard to ignore. And at this point, speaking of kind of uh, tropes and silliness, we get a bunch of freeze frame kind of info dumps, like the classic, what happened to them info dumps. Yeah. Um, That's, that's my animal house outro. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I know you want to do Animal House on the show, too, so I haven't seen that movie in, like, I don't know how long, and I don't remember anything about it, but it seems reasonable that that's what we're looking at here. Um, For William, he goes to Harvard, he becomes popular, he's a software engineer, he's dating a model, blah, 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 more or less how the actor's life actually turned out, it seems. Um, Then we get Mike, and Mike's is, like, so dumb, it's not even worth putting up there. Um, (laughs) He does work at a car wash. Yeah, he he works at car wash, but then he's he gets fired because some incriminating Polaroids surfaced. appeared, surfaced. Yeah, uh, Kenny and Denise are on again, off again. Basically, there's a card that says they broke up, and then five minutes later they got back together and fuck in the bathroom or something like that. Yeah. Um, and then the Shermanator is stealing a gumball machine in the background of that scene. <laughs> so <laughs> you know, we get another little peek we, at his. Did we mention mania. he stole a cop car when the raid happened? No, no, I forgot it. But yeah, he opted one of those cop cars and took off. Yeah. I, he, I actually like that that theft the most. 
Dude, it's, out, it's outrageous, as outrageous as it would have been. You know, it, <laughs> it definitely came across kind of funny in the in the chaos and confusion. Him backing I mean, up he's, a, a squad he's car. Starring in his, he's starring in his own movie over there. He's got a whole other movie going in the background of this movie, <laughs> um, starring the Shermanator, <laughs> Chris Owen, who I, uh, I will never forget that name. So uh, no, that's the one thing this podcast will do for me is I'll never forget his name. Um, Finally, we see Preston at Union Station in downtown L.A., which it's not made clear that's where we're at, but that's where they're at. Um, And Amanda has tracked him down via his dad, I guess. She says something like that. Um, She brings him the letter and thanks him for what it said. And then he they kind of play the game of like, well, I'm leaving right now. And she's like, "Okay, we'll have a nice life. And then they go their separate ways. And then he turns around and runs back for like a never mind kind of thing and he basically says he'll take a later train so they can hang out um and then they kiss and the final card info gives us the happy ending implications i did enjoy the uh the, the music there i i don't know man i got a i got a soft spot for like 80 synth pop with with yes there yeah only, yeah only I'm, you i'm not mad at it Soften i'm not mad background. at it and also, if I was Preston and she came to the station, I would quit my life and go wherever <laughs> she's going next. Yeah, when she arrives and she's holding the letter, you know, um, it should have been swapped with the restraining order is what it should have been holding. <laughs> <laughs> Never come back to L.A., please. And she should have been flanked by two two patrol officers. Exactly. Yeah, like, it should have been, ser- he should have been served in that moment. Right? It should have been, like, a fucking, uh, an officer of the court, like, a, a big, fat, mustachioed guy, like, angrily jamming a fucking restraining order in his hand. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you've been served. You've, you've got my letter. I thought it was my exactly. letter. No, it's exactly. actually my restraining order for you. <laughs> you think it's, like, a big, fat cop with a mustache is holding his, his letter to Amanda? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> there's no way this guy deserves Jennifer Love Hewitt. I know you're not a fan oh, of her here in this movie, but well, you know what? Okay, so, dude, here's the, here's the part where I gotta I gotta talk for a second. Why the fuck is she wearing like a mom's wardrobe in this scene? <laughs> Go back and watch this again and tell me she's not dressed in some mom's clothes. I'm gonna look at it right now, motherfucker. Oh my god! Like again, there's she's literally like her hair looks more approachable but yet still perfectly coiffed you know in the back it's it's unrealistic yeah. but then her wardrobe she's literally wearing like somebody's mother's clothes <laughs> i mean she's got like the, the khaki pants pulled up to the like you know like the just whole under her ensemble boobs. And she's got the fucking like looks like a kind of cardigan thing, and she, yeah. her shirt has her her shirt has Hummel figures on it. I think <laughs> I think her hair looks really cute though in this scene. I think her hair. I looks think cute. from the front, I think from the back, it looks too artificial again. Like it's cute, but then again, it's like, god damn, how many times did you brush it? Oh yeah, the back does look crazy. It looks like she's brushing over something that's hiding. Like, a, you know what it looks like? It looks like she might have extensions, and they're hiding the extension where the extensions are attached with the rest of her hair. There, it's possible she's hiding like the the welts from the collar that Ethan Embry's character <laughs> has like had her chained up in a ba- bedroom for. Oh boy, yeah, maybe. But I'm st- I'm still into it, man. I'm a hundred percent there for. Her. So that's the end of the movie proper, and then there's a post credit scene that implies that aliens come for the sci fi geeks, but it's right. entirely unnecessary. And then apparently there's a an audio clip at the end of the uh, I'll kick everyone's ass in this room, which is an awesome way to end the movie. But 
Yeah, that's the fucking that's how that movie played out. I feel like you know what we think of this movie, but if we're going to give it like a, a sword dick, a quicksand under the car seat or a broccoli horror trope, what, where are you going or do you want me to go first here? I'm going to go, honestly, I'm going to go with, with quicksand under the car seat. I'm not 100% sure, but I think that's quicksand under the car seat. Almost exclusively for Kenny. And I'm going to also point out that Love Burger made me laugh. So you're saying that without them, it would be broccoli horror trope for you? I would say in retrospect, in the moment in which I first saw this film, it would it would be pretty middle of the road regardless. I yeah. think I think there's a lot of things that at this point, I don't know if I call them unforgivable, but they definitely take take the film and drag it down into the mud. Um, Again, you it, you can tell this is this is clearly you know an early effort by you know everyone involved, um, with the exception of a, a handful of the actors. It's it's clearly you know I it's kind of an innocent film in that way. So I don't have problems with it other than some of the glaring things that you know the the light of twenty years has sh- has shown upon it. Um, but Kenny Kenny redeems the the comedic elements for me uh everything else would have like if if you had taken seth green out of the film there's no way i would have watched this again like willingly (laughs) all right i think i liked it a little more than you but it's the quick center of the car seat it's like a you know right in the middle and i agree with pretty much everything you said there's a there's a couple of things that save it for me but it 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 teeters right on the edge of not acceptable um right up till the end so i agree with pretty the only thing i'd say differently than you is that i think that jennifer love hewitt (laughs) takes it up one extra notch and you're not giving her that Uh, much again she's replaceable in this film all right well that's what we thought of it i'm gonna throw a couple of facts at you real quick i don't have a lot luckily so don't (laughs) worry but uh the first one you've mentioned to me before brecken meyer was married and and actually had kids with deborah kaplan one of the writer directors of the film and they were dating at the time of this movie and a lot of the cast came by way of his connection to the film so yeah him him being connected i think brought a lot of people around he's he's like a one of those hollywood kids from the 90s that had a lot of friends they were all actors the second Fun fact I've got here, the role of William was actually played by another actor named Adam Han Bird, but it quickly became apparent to the directors that he wasn't the right fit, so he was replaced by Charlie Corsmo. Han Bird had previously played the titular role in the Jodie Foster joint Little Man Tate, which I have never seen, but I remember seeing the cover, so I've seen this fucking kid's face, but yeah, he... I guess he would film some scenes and then they just, they're like, oh, he's not working, he's too shy or he's too uh, submissive or something, like... They couldn't picture him doing the fucking Guns N' Roses scene, (laughs) more or less, is what I read. Speaking of Charlie Corsmo, as you talked about before, he quit acting after this to go to school. He became a lawyer. He was, like, picked by Obama to be part of, you know, some sort of government uh, thing. He he quit acting to become a a successful everything else. So he's basically the kid. I think it was a legal advisory board. Yeah, that that sounds right. But, yeah, you know, good good on him, I guess. Yeah. my next fact, Ethan Embry has said that he was so stoned during this filming of this movie, he can't remember any of it. So <laughs> uh, that, that, I think... That makes a little bit of sense. Yeah, it's sort of the opposite of when you said he was asleep for, or he was awake for a bunch of days, but kind of the same. You know, 
Does he say what he was stoned on? <laughs> I, we, he's, he was a pothead. All right. He was smoking weed in his trailer constantly, according to him and other sources. Okay. And I guess Jennifer Love Hewitt made him eat a gang of breath mints for their kissing scene at the end because he smelled like an ashtray. Ah. So he did not deserve to kiss that wonderful mouth, <laughs> in my opinion. In her mom outfit. Exactly. She is, you know what? I'm down for the moms. I have no problem with that. <laughs> My last fact here, apparently, uh, we've talked about it. The original script had more of an R-rated vibe, and a lot of stuff had to be cut or altered for the PG-13. And Ethan Embry has actually been critical of this fact in subsequent interviews. So he, he, he liked the original script and was disappointed when they fucked it up to make it like more family-friendly or whatever. And yeah, as I said before, there's CGI to hide things like bongs and a shot glass. It's When you know <laughs> to look for it, it looks so stupid. That yeah. the, the orange looks like it was painted on with like you know ms paint or something i remember the balloon part but yeah it's it's a uh, yeah it's it's rough what they did yeah and that's my facts uh let's do the no fly list now the no fly list is going to be a list of things that we think either would make this movie unmakeable now or if we think like a plot hole is just so fucking stupid that it, it makes this movie not fly for us either of those are acceptable if you if you want to do your list first well, okay, so I've mentioned a little bit, but the chloroform itself, I mean, that would have classified as some sort of felony assault, if you ask me. Um, I, <laughs> I mean, you know, GHB or whatever, it's, it's, all that stuff falls under a similar category to, to basically render somebody unconscious to that state to be able to manipulate them in an assault form. Ah, that's rough. Um, yeah. All right, we talked about. Uh, I mean, the part the part where Mike is is most humiliated is is after the you know the the slur yelled from the crowd after. Yeah. I, I mean, he's 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 already been dismantled uh, with Amanda taking him down six or seven pegs, and then it's it's clearly punctuated, and you can see the gut wrenching look on his face upon being called you know a name. It's kind of kind of out there. The four years of gaslighting her in the first place. <laughs> you know, I mean, Mike has clearly, you know, done something to hollow her brain out here and, and remove any self worth that she's <laughs> she's found that you know that that she had built up prior to moving to this high school. You know, it's clearly you know she's not uh, built on a stable pillar to begin with. The fact that like she's not just intrigued by the letter that she finds, the fact that she doesn't react in some some level of apprehension or fear to a letter that uh, from somebody that she's not familiar with that's clearly obsessed with her how is uh, I mean, that that wouldn't fly um they might, they might be a perfect match oh my god maybe maybe i mean i <laughs> guess i guess since mike dexter has hollowed her out so much maybe that any <laughs> any any positives that she sees out there she's she's grasping at ethan embry can wear her husk <laughs> we talked about uh, Mike being terminated from his car wash job for Polaroid surfacing. I feel like, if anything, those are would be the least scandalous things that he gets, he's perpetrated. He, he gets fired for vaguely homoerotic pictures. Exactly. <laughs> where you, from a car wash. <laughs> where there's either a clown nose or a snowball on him. <laughs> snowball on one From nipple. a car wash, yeah. yes. A snowball where they on have one high nipple s- and a clown nose on the other. <laughs> the highest standards. Exactly. The high, where they have such HR standards, you know, at a car wash where he can't maintain that hourly position. <laughs> um, well, then uh, just 
I don't know. The, the fact that Preston is is portrayed to the audience that we should feel sympathetic to him or or at least feel connected to him somehow where he's downright obsessive and creepy. I mean, it's the fact that maybe this is a fact that he's obsessing over her for a week now would be a hell of a lot more acceptable for the fact that then then it's stretched out over a minimum of 4 years where he's just written a letter obsessively and carried around with him it's just nuts yeah he's a maniac he's definitely gonna hold someone hostage at some point so so yeah those those are on my no fly list right on um i agree agree across the board Uh, and some of mine are similar first of all everything relating to the word fag in this movie is just over the line it's it's ridiculous um would not happen these days uh the nerds plan you know humiliation by homosexuality so kind of piggybacking on your chloroform assault it's just everything about that whole plan is like ridiculous to me and and wouldn't probably would guys wouldn't they be afraid like wouldn't they be afraid to like because that's a felony i would assume yeah it seems like they're worried about being addicted to alcohol but they're going to commit this fucking basically committing a sexual assault on this guy (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we got the foreign exchange student bit, which we've talked about ad nauseum. Mike Dexter physically assaulting yearbook girl, I found quite offensive and want to extract justice on him for it. <laughs> the next one I have here is an unpolitical Scott Bayo reference, which really just because if you mention Scott Bayo now, it's going to have a political lean to it. You can't yeah. mention Scott Bayo and only be talking about Chachi anymore. He's fucked that up. Can you talk about Charles in charge, though? Oh, boy. That's even worse, I think. <laughs> um, and then finally, the scene where Kenny's homies try to socialize with the black kids, and one of them uses the N-word conversationally is just... I said it, it, it kind of skeeved me in the moment watching it. I was like, oh, not necessarily. Like, if I if I was going to do an edit of this movie, that's probably the one scene that I would, like, just outright lose. And I can like, see that with, like, you know, the recent... Uh editing of streaming episodes of tv shows yeah. and stuff where that right if if can't hardly wait was on you know a netflix platform or it's or on similar. netflix okay. i didn't watch it on netflix but it is i'm curious now i'm gonna have to go look and see if they left that in i think they would leave that in i don't i think it, i don't we, know though we would have heard about it being dropped somehow despite the fact that the relevance of the movie isn't that high yeah so yeah that's our that's our lists on this fucking movie um hey We've come to the end of the road, my friend. Uh, well, we did and... tease. We did tease that there was some, a potential re, um, sequel. Oh, to this. they have a, a, a second movie, a sequel, a reunion, and, and it's yes, and and we know who's driving that, Lou. Is it Jennifer Love Hewitt? It's being driven by Jennifer Love Hewitt, supposedly. <laughs> so obviously, she's Sign enamored. Me up. She's enamored of her her time spent in this film. She, I mean, she's watched the movie and she, she felt about it how I did. She wants to recapture <laughs> that lo- hair. She loves her. Yeah, maybe she's still got that hair, dude. And you know what? Based upon everything I've said so far, I would watch a sequel of a reunion of this party because I'll yeah. tell you right now. Um, I, I may sound harsh the whole way through, but it did hit some some buttons for me, and you know, it's it's a day in the life. Uh, film and I, I'm a fan of that. It's an ensemble cast, and I'm a fan of that. So, you know, and and I liked the idea that they decided that they were going to basically make a movie where the, it, it, I guess they, it was stated that um, they found that some of the more interesting scenes and in other teen movies are taking place at the party. So then they ended up saying, let's just make a movie where it's almost all at the party. 
Yeah. So I thought I that was is... I thought that was a good way to you know to try to encapsulate something you like about other films. Yeah. So. I mean, I think the original title for this movie was The Party okay. before they changed it. So that's that fits. It all fits. Um, so yeah. They, and so they. It, I mean, we can also mention that the 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 title of the film "Can't Hardly Wait" comes from a replacement song. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of the replacements myself, but I'm not either. But it's one of those things where, like, well, what the fuck? Why is it called "Can't Hardly Wait"? Yeah, yeah, replacements. Uh, well, I'd be down to watch a watch a sequel, and it'll never fucking happen. There's no, there's literally no chance of that happening. I will, I will eat my hat if they make a sequel. I, I would be severely surprised. But then again, Hollywood has regurgitated so many other, it's true, you know, properties. So. You never know. It's yeah. Certainly a possibility. I just don't. I would. I would put. I would put my money on no. Well, think about betting, man. Think about it from this this perspective. I mean, if if Jennifer Love Hewitt's the one driving it, there's not too many other um, cast members that are going to drive the cost up. You know, it's not like there's going to yeah. be a high budget involved with it. They could just do it as a small labor of love if that's really what it is. Yeah, I think I think Ethan Embry said he would do it if they paid him more than they paid him the first time. So, well, it's not like you know. he's, I, I, you know, he had his his crack at leading man, you know, and and I yeah. don't know where he's at currently, but yeah, you know, everybody needs money. I'm sure more more so now than ever, probably. Yeah. Well, if we if the, if it comes out, maybe we'll do an episode on it in the future, <laughs> and it'll be four hours long. Right. Um. <laughs> I mean that's uh, clearly some of this is uh if you know first real episode uh getting legs for it. Yeah. Yeah, we'll streamline this a bit. <laughs> <laughs> so apologies. Speaking of that, let's let's fucking outro this bitch. So what movie are we going to do for episode 3? What's our next movie here? Uh notes say pump up the volume. That must be what it is. <laughs> We're doing Pump Up the Volume. So uh, if you want to follow along at home, you should probably watch Pump Up the Volume because we're going to fucking spoil that movie too. We're going to tell you all the secrets. And that being said, we can draw together another Seth Greed train and uh, we can we can talk about Christian Slater post-Heathers. Exactly. It's all going to come together here. Also, another uh, theme that you're going to notice in this show is another leading lady I've got a huge crush on. You know, Samantha Mathis deserves it in that film, though, so there you go. All right, we'll be on the same team next time around. I look yeah. forward to that. Yeah. All right, well, it was good chatting with you here. All right, Dan out. <laughs> <laughs> I'll kick everyone's ass in this room!